and set. Hello everyone. Thank you very much for coming by today. I appreciate you swinging in for another Merged Worlds Dungeons & Dragons story stream. Uh, let's see, today is episode 17. Uh, so since these average two hours or a little more, that means after today there'll be over 34 hours of this story available. And I'm not even halfway through, so long way to go. I'd like to say hello to everybody in the chat. Let's see, uh, Mystique's here. Hello, Diamond Hook. Uh, let's see, Nathan. Hello, Nathan. Thank you for coming by. Um, as always, I'll... oh, Beast popped in as well. Hello, Beast. Uh, as usual, we'll start off where I'll just do a little bit of a recap from last episode. Um, kind of where we left off and then move into the story. Um, as always, I always like to ask, if you do enjoy yourself here, you're enjoying the story, it would be awesome if you wouldn't mind clicking the like button. Uh, and if you haven't already, please subscribe to the channel. That way you can see videos, streams, and such as they come out. And yes, Diamond Hook, I do remember you from the Subnautica stream. Uh, and I appreciate you coming back again. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Subnautica will be again on Thursday. So we'll have more Subnautica again uh, later on this week as well. All right, so uh, for anyone who is new or may not have been here before, um, I have been running and writing Dungeons & Dragons stories since around I was 11, and I'm now much older than that, so at this point over 30 years. Uh, and I started this story and campaign specifically um, over 25 years ago. It was actually 1994, so we're looking at 26 years at this point since I started the original story, um, and over... The years, even as I had different groups come in and new people play, the storyline continued, and it just ended up becoming a generational thing all within a homebrew world that I've been building called Merge Worlds. Uh, so I decided I would start sharing that story. I've, had, I've shared it with friends and people I've known many times over the years, uh, but I really wanted to get it all out there in detail for those folks who might uh, benefit from it, uh, whether you're a D&D player yourself or you just like a good story. Um, so I, I started doing it here on YouTube, and uh, the response has been pretty awesome so far, uh, and I appreciate everybody who has been checking it out both here and as an audio podcast, which is available on iTunes or Spotify. You can get an either one. They're free, of course, uh, so that is awesome. If you'd like to listen to them there as well, you prefer an audio format. Uh, hello, Neon. Thank you for coming in. And hello, Mega. Thanks for swinging by as well. Appreciate you coming into the stream today. All right, so... Um, Start where we left off last week, or two weeks ago, because we do this every other Sunday night. So in the last episode, our heroes and such, if you will, um, were trying to help the Kingdom of Thorman, which was under siege by a massive undead army. And hello, Seth. Thank you for coming by. Um, they had the armies of Paxawal, which is the city where they live in, um, and a contingent from the uh, Minotaur Kingdom of Kronayar, as well as the Thorman army itself, had all banded together to try to find the source of and destroy this undead army. They didn't know what was leading it, only that something had control of it. Oh, well, I'm glad I was able to help you out, Mega. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, they fought their way in as far as they could. There were some adventures in a city when fighting the undead army there. And then our group of heroes kind of broke off on their own uh, because they found message or tale of a, an old castle built into a mountain behind where the uh, undead were coming from. And another group, which wasn't our characters, went to search an old graveyard. They didn't know where the source was, but they kind of narrowed it down to those two areas. Luckily, our heroes found the right one. They found a back way in, and they found their way into the castle. And fighting their way into the leader of the undead, 
uh, they learned that, unfortunately, the leader on the undead was one of their former compatriots and love interest of the Kender Dandy, uh, Dandelion her, is her full name, uh, named Michael, who was a knight. Um, and he had merged with the Death Stone, had merged, merged to his forehead, which is the most common place to merge a stone, in case you didn't know that. Um, but he, uh, he was one controlling the undead. And in this situation, the stone had taken over him. In his grief of loss over Dandy, uh, he believed her to be dead. Technically, at the time, she was. Um, the stone basically told him, merge with me, and we can bring her back. That's my power. Um, but the stone was stronger than him at the time and basically took him over and has been raising the undead and killing everything ever since. So they had to fight him as well as the raised bodies of two of their other old friends, Shadow and Willow. Um, let's see. So that was tough. You know, that was a, that was a hard thing for them to deal with. They had to basically destroy their you know, two other friends that were undead, which they did. Um, and then they uh, had to fight Michael. And they'd always been told that if the stone was merged to someone or an item, the only way to get it out was to break the item or kill the person. They didn't want to kill Michael, but they couldn't let him keep doing what he was doing. It was in that battle that the being, I'll just call him that because we haven't really narrowed down what he is yet, uh, Draven, who had come to... Artemis the cleric early on and made her a bar an offer said you'll need me in the future and when that time comes you'll have a choice you can choose to accept my assistance and if I do at that time your your side of the agreement is that when the day comes that I need your help to destroy this being that I'm after no matter what is going on in your life, no matter where you are, what you're doing, you will drop it all and come with me on my quest to destroy this thing. Once I find him. And because he's been told from someone, she doesn't know who, that he would need her help to be successful. Um, but she had to come free-willed. He can't force her or anything like that. Hey, thanks for coming by, Seth. I appreciate it. Um, so he, in that moment, he said, I can help you save Michael's life. I can show you how to get rid of the stone from remove the stone from him murder without having to kill him so she joined with a stone and took his bargain the little necklace he'd given her with a little look like a blood drop um gem shattered and now she has a little blood uh red um tattoo for all intents and purposes on her skin birthmark whatever you want to call it but now it's there um but it's under her robes so at this point no one knows that she has it but her um but they were able to save Michael. Michael regaining his senses, um, even though the gem was kind of controlling his body, he was in there. He saw everything he was technically doing and was in such a state of remorse and loss because of all the people that died by his actions uh, that he basically said, I can't be with you people anymore. I have to go do something. Uh, basically, it was a, I have to go and find whether or not I have to turn myself in. I have to atone for my sins. So on, and sadly, even though Dandy didn't want to let him go, he had to go. Uh, so they had gathered up the things, and someone asked this in chat uh, in the Discord channel after the last episode, and I hadn't addressed it, but yes, uh, someone asked what happened to the bodies of their other two friends. Uh, they did bury them. Yes, they took care of that. There, there was actually a... They actually had some nice things to say. I don't remember where they were so long ago, but they actually said a little thing at their uh, funeral. They did bury them uh, in that area. And then uh, they returned back to Thorman, where they learned that once Mike was defeated, all the undead just fell apart. And they are right back in Thorman now. 
So that's kind of where we left off last week. Uh, so I'm excited because we have some interesting events that are going to unfold today. Uh, some for sure, depending on how quickly I go, maybe even twice as much. So we will see. So, and Neon, yes, I appreciate you looking into the Minecraft thing for Mega. I apologize, Mega, I'm not having Minecraft up. It's hard to know a lot of these things off the top of my head. I'd have to log in to do that, and I, I really can't do that on this stream. But if we don't have the answers for you by the end of the stream, I will jump on afterwards and uh, put it in the Discord. So definitely jump in and join the ODG Discord, and we can chat with you there if you have any questions about Minecraft ever. And that goes for anyone. If you have questions about Merge World, Minecraft, or anything else, you can go to my website, onlydraven.com. On the top of the first page will be a link that will let you join up to the ODG um, Discord channel. It's pretty active. A lot of knowledgeable people in there. We'd love to have you come in if you have questions about this, Merge Worlds, D&D in general. We've got threads for that. We've got Minecraft stuff as well. So it's pretty, pretty cool. All right. So now we'll step into today's, where we left off. So back in Thorman, they explain part of the story. They don't say, hey, it's our old friend Michael, Dandy's ex... Well, technically still, boyfriend Michael. They say that they found a being that had merged with a powerful artifact. And that artifact is what was controlling the undead. And that they had no choice but to destroy it. Um, and that's, what's, that's what saved everybody. They don't say that they saved Michael. They don't say what the artifact was. Because A, they don't tell everybody about these magical gems that they're trying to collect. Of which there are seven. And now that they have the death gem, they have five of them. And we're going to recap those. The very beginning of the story, Zoltan the demigod gave them the life gem, which is currently merged to Artemis's staff of healing. Um, the first adventure, they went and got the water gem from the guy who was uh, in the island in the water. Uh, the fire gem they got from your old friend Zarin when they defeated him. Uh, the wind gem they got from Fig after he traded it to the centaur. And now the death gem they have from Michael. Uh, so that leaves them with two more gems to get all seven. So, there we go. Okay. So, it's a victory. I mean, the undead are defeated. A lot of people died, but technically more were saved. So Thorman at this point is basically celebrating. And once the heroes come back and explain what happened, you know, their version of it anyways, their edited version, um, and they don't really tell anybody there any different. The only people that know the truth are our four heroes, you know, Dandy, Darsh, Mercy, and Artemis, and their friend um, Tobias, the mage who was traveling with them. That was the five that went. Um... So then Tobias is trustworthy. He definitely, like, he's going to let Lamia know who's the head of the, uh, his faction of the mage in the mage tower in Paxiwal. You know, but she knows about the gems. It's okay to share with them. But they don't tell everybody in Thorman. So, um, what, what they run into at this point is basically a celebration. Uh, Thorman is ecstatic, you know, because at this point they were facing complete and total destruction. I mean, they the undead were just marching through to basically squish their faces and people were fleeing. Um, at this point, they can start calling people back. You know, refugees that have already gone off to other locations like Paxwell and such, they can come back. We can start bringing people in. Um, people can start to return to their homes again. Now, the army's still going to be on alert because they believe everything's gone, but you, know, you never know for sure. 
the heroes say it stopped, but they don't know the heroes that much. But they love the heroes at this point. Uh, they are, they are, they as well as several people that were involved, some of the generals, some of the head clerics, even a couple of the Minotaur, are basically hailed as as heroes and such and so on. Uh, but the our group, our five, if you will. Uh, are, are basically considered the victors of the war, and it's recognized such. Um, and this works out really, really well in several different ways. Um, because Darsh is a Minotaur, even though he's not really part of Kronayar, the Minotaur Kingdom at this point, the Minotaurs that are there see him standing up there being recognized as a hero of this human kingdom. That's like, that's, they like that. Like, yeah, that's right. Okay, they're, they're giving praise. They're giving honor to one of our kind. And several others, and, and they're thanked horribly as well. But Darsh being up there, one of the main heroes, uh, that says a lot to the Minotaurs. And definitely that, that puts him on their radar. And the different things he's, they've seen him do throughout this part of the adventure um, had already been impressed. So now that he's known as a hero of the human kingdom, um, that's pretty big sauce. Um, and the same thing with the clerics. Artemis is there. That's awesome. The mages see Tobias. Same thing. Dandy's there, but most people just try not to try to overlook Kendra, and so on. And then Mercy being warrior as well. You know, it's a warrior. So overall, pretty awesome situation um, for for all around. And because they were sent by Paxiwal, that really looks good from Paxiwal. Because Paxiwal has been trying to get Thorman to enter into some serious treaties and trade deals. Um, and this could very well be the, the thing they needed to push them over the edge of that. So, what I'd like to go into at this point then is kind of the repercussions of this. The king of Thorman, again, wanting to show thanks. Who, by the way, he's feeling much better from when the assassination attempt happened. Um, feeling much better is able to be there for the such. And not only does he award all five of them with basically the highest honor, a medal, if you will, of the Kingdom of Thormund, uh, which was basically rank of the crown, which means the king recognizes you as a hero of the kingdom. <clears throat> so major deeds done. Um, almost like a golden key. Get you in almost any door here. Uh, that's serious business. Um, it, but they also grant all of them titles. Um, now, doesn't give them land, if you will. They're not like barons and here this plot of land is yours. None of that. But they do receive a rank equivalent to noble within this kingdom. Um, as do, again, several people of their own army, their own generals and commanders. They rank up their own people as well because they're not just going to praise people from somewhere else. The king's smarter than that. But in the group that's mostly his own people, R4 and 5, Tobias included, are in there and are uh, part of that. So they are named as Heroes of the Crown. Which gives them rank. So, Sir Darsh, Sir Tobias, Lady Artemis, Lady Mercy, Lady Dandy, which was a shock. The first Kender to ever get it. But they can't overlook how well Dandy assisted, especially in the uh, stopping the assassination attempt. She was serious, seriously a big part of that. So, this is a big deal. There's several days of, you know, what do you call it, um, banquets and festivities and such, honoring them and all of that. And um, 
Darsh and Mercy get pretty drunk several times because they like to compete with each other. And Darsh likes Mercy because she's the one human he's found that can kind of keep up with her. On occasion, once she swears she even drank him, he still denies that. He said somebody moved the table and he fell. That wasn't his fault. Um, but they like to compete in that range. And, of course, the other, the other Minotaurs think it's hilarious that Mercy's in there drinking, keeping up with him. And then they start chatting with Mercy as well, and they get kind of chummy. Which, again, is odd, because while the Minotaurs are slightly more inclusive of the warriors of Thormund, they're still mostly kind of keeping to themselves. Um, but, that being said, they're still letting a couple people in, a couple of the key warriors that they fought with side by side, as well as Mercy and Darsh. But after several days of festivities and such, it is time to go home. Um, several of the, the military have already started to return home in the ships, uh, but the main contingent, which is now you know the head wizards, clerics, Darsh's generals, they're all now heading back. Paxwell is leaving a small um, group of warriors to help kind of reform the border uh, where the undead kind of stopped because there's the fear they could rise up again. So they're staying to help until that can be kind of cleaned up because there's still a lot of just dead bodies that just fell to the ground. A lot of them did not turn to dust. They're just rotty bodies right there. They, they're going to have to do something with that. So Paxwell is staying to help with that. And it is proclaimed that uh, Excuse me. Thorman is now entering into a great partnership and friendship with the kingdom of Paxwell, uh, their brothers and sisters in this battle. So Paxwell is going to be very happy with our heroes as well for helping bring that in because now they do move into, over the next months if not year, um, official, officially becoming trade partners and all that kind of stuff. So politically this was a very good move for them as well. But it takes a little bit of time, you know, it's a boat ride to get all the way back to Paxwell. It takes a little while to get there, but they do. And upon returning, of course, they always go back to their house to drop their stuff off and pack before they move into um, the temple. Because they always check into the temple and let them know, hey, we found another st stone. They're going to tell them the whole story of about Michael. Artemis is not looking forward to that part. Um, but... They always go home first. And they drop their stuff off, check the house. No signs that anyone's been in there messing with the house. They do meet Molly next door, who is um, you know, their neighbor. A uh, nice lady who makes and sells pies. Darsh, in love with her cooking. Um, she is excited to hear the news. They tell they, She's already heard the stories already around that the heroes defeated some ancient magical evil warrior, which of course is blown out of proportions, but you can't ruin stuff like that. The story of what they did is even bigger in Paxwell than what they actually did. So they're recognized. They already were being slightly recognized, but even more so now. Um, and as they return to Paxwell and are working through the, through the area, people noticing, they get back. Molly's like, oh, you guys are heroes. I heard all the news about it. She's a gossip lady. Loves the gossip. And uh, they're like, well, we have to drop our stuff off and then we have to go to the temple and kind of check in and let them know what happened. And she promises to have several fresh, hot new pies ready for their return, and Darsh is visibly salivating, and Mercy's got to elbow him, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, heroes, warriors. God, I'm hoping one of those is Apple. After dropping off their stuff, they make their way back to the temple. Arriving at the temple of Paxiwal, again, known there at this point, especially Artemis, uh, they're very quickly ushered in to the standard waiting room area where they're put. There's usually drinks and some food there, fruit and things, some cheese. Stuff to munch on while they wait, because usually the head clerics are busy and they're not immediately ready to go. And they're pleasantly surprised that once again they've run into 
two people they've met there previously. There was an elf named Zack and a kender named Twill. And they were good friends, best friends, people would say. And they're map makers. And they've been traveling all over Merge Worlds, creating overwhelmingly detailed maps. Um, and then basically returning to where uh, different kingdoms and saying, hey, here's a copy of the map. Here's where you live now. Look what we found close to you. Not expecting any type of payment. Um, sometimes trading for other maps or knowledge that they don't have. Um, but they're very, very much seeking that type of thing and just sharing that knowledge freely. Um, and so because of that, even though he's a kender, his maps are so exquisitely made and so accurate um, that he pretty much can get him, as long as he's with Zack, because Zack kind of keeps him under control. As long as he's with Zack, they can march on in without any real issues. And there they're hanging out again. They just brought some new maps back, um, said that they'd actually mapped out the kingdom of Kronayar, the Minotaur kingdom. Uh, which is a little surprising when they hear that because they're like, normally Minotaurs wouldn't just let an elf and a kender just hop off a boat and walk on on shore and wander around a Minotaur kingdom. But they don't ask too many questions because, you know, it's not offered. But like usual, Twill and Dandy sit down and start showing what's in each other's... This is what I found. Look what I have on my... I found this piece of glass and we fought an undead thing. And, oh, this is a feather I got from a goat sucker bird. Whatever the case is. Showing all the cool treasures that they found. Zack, of course, Elvin, a little bit more serious, also says, hey, I've heard tales of what, you know, what you've been doing here in the last while, and I must say, I'm mightily impressed. You've had your hands in a lot of cookie jars, and you seem to come out uh, not just better off yourselves, but better off for everyone, the kingdom, Paxawal, and wherever you are. seems everyone is benefiting from your actions, and I have to say, that's pretty heroic. And pretty courageous, and I'm happy to hear it. Forces of groups of, of people honestly just seeking to do good are rare and far and few in today's existence in this new world, and it's very nice to see people working to better instead of destroy or dominate. And they chat a little bit more, and Zach gives off a weird vibe. Like, elves are serious, normally. You know, they can joke around and such, but normally they're a little more serious, especially when they're not, when they're surrounded by non-elves. They're even more, I guess, uptight, you could say. Zack acts a little bit more casual, like he's been around people a lot more, and he just knows how to act a bit better, you could say. But he gives off a weird vibe, like he knows more about you than he should. You know what I mean? Like when he's talking to you and you're telling a story, he's nodding, and you have a feeling that he already knows what you're telling him. Or he may even know more about what you're telling him than even you do. And it's just a weird feeling that disgust, the characters, because they did, they discussed this. They all, just the way that he talked to them, they picked up on that and they're like, yeah, I felt that way too. Something odd about Zack. But eventually, um, a cleric arrives and says, hey, if you'll come with me, uh, Sister Mara and Brother Bart are ready to, ready to see you. So they go up there and they chat with Sister Mara and Brother Bart. And they uh, talk with them, and they tell everything that happens. Every detail, including Michael, and so on and so forth. Um, the clerics, just crushed, of course, by the amount of death and such. These are good clerics. They don't want to hear that. And they understand why they didn't tell everybody else about Michael, that Michael was not in control. Um, they have some concerns that even though he's away from the gym now, how do we know he's 
not gonna, you know, that hasn't pers- you know, permanently affected him. And the characters have to admit, you know, we don't know that for sure, but we have to take it on faith. You know, he's someone we care about. One of our people here actually genuinely loves him. Um, and so we, we, we kind of have to take that chance to give him a chance to atone for what he's done. Will we see him again? We don't know. Mm-hmm. But he, he, he couldn't stay. Now they have five gems. They show, of course, they pull out all the gems. One of them is attached to Artemis' staff. They've all seen that one. But they pull out the other four and set them down. And normally the clerics are like, oh, let's take a look at those. None of them want to touch the death gem. You know, even our characters don't really like touching the death gem. Darsh and Dandy don't really care. Mercy, iffy, it just feels cold to her. But Artemis doesn't like to touch it at all either. So, um... Just touching it, you, you get that sense of death and dread, and you start to smell that, you know, musk of the grave. Even though it's not really there, you just, just touching the gem gives you that feeling. Um, which isn't necessarily evil, mind you. Death is a requirement. It's just an inevitable part of existence. Um, but it still gives you those heebie-jeebies, if you will. After they give all the whole story, we have five gems now. There's two left. Um... And they don't know which what they are. Now they have three gems that are the element. They got an uh, they got an air, they got a water, and they got a fire. So the assumption is one of these is probably an earth gem, if the world goes the way that it you know it usually does. Then the other one that they have is the life gem and the death gem. Well, those are polar opposites. You'd expect that. Okay, you got life and you got death. But there's one gem left, or no, two gem left. One's earth. What's that last one? You know, what is that last gem going to be? They don't, they don't know. So they have to find out. Mar and Bart tell them, we haven't found any new clues. The mages haven't found any new clues to where the next one would be. But we do want to tell you that a strange man, literally yesterday, came to the temple and delivered a message. He refused to come into the temple or even walk on temple grounds. But he left a message for you all with one of the Templars. And they're like, did he write it down? Like, no, no, no. It was, it was a short. He asks that you meet him tomorrow at the ruins of an old temple. It's just an hour or so, hour and a half north, northeast of Paxiwal. Um, old temple that burned down a long time ago. We built a much newer one in the area, nicer, larger. That was never rebuilt, but because it was Holy Land, it's, the ruins are kind of left there. And he's asked that you meet them, him there at a specific time. He gives them the time tomorrow. And they're like, okay, did you did you know? Did you leave a name or anything like that? And Mary's like, I don't believe so. And she calls a name out. And, and Eric. And one of the Templars comes and goes, actually, it was, it was Eric that spoke to him. Eric. Did the gentleman who left a message for our friends here give a name? And Eric said, no, my lady. He, I asked, but he gave no name or any type of identifying title or anything of that kind. And Darsh is like, okay, well, what did he look like? Well, he, he, was, he was a human man, you know, human. Um, I mean, really didn't have anything specific that stood out about him. Just kind of average. You know, now that I think about it, I... I don't really remember what it looked like. He just nothing stood out. He's just like a regular looking guy. They're like, okay, well, thank you very much, Eric. You can go. And Eric, you know, as he's leaving, he stops and goes, Oh, one thing I can tell you though, I'd forgotten. He was completely dressed in gray. He had gray hair. He's wearing gray robes, but he he didn't give a name. That's all I remember. 
And the, our characters look at each other, and Darcy just shakes his head, fuming. <laughs> uh. The next day at the appointed time, on horses that they... We'll say at this point, they purchased some horses and they pay to keep them stable, just in case they need horses. Because I believe they did buy horses. They arrive at the ruins, and of course, sitting on the edge of one of the walls and the broken pieces is Zoltan the Demigod, also known as the Grey Man. Just kind of hanging out. Haven't seen him in quite a while. And as they approach, he just casually stands up, and his hands hidden in the robes, with just the faintest bit of a smile. And again, nothing stands out about him. Other than he has the very gray hair. He's dressed in long gray robes. But there's no identifying marks. His eyes are kind of like a brownish gray as well. You know, he looks about his early 40s or so. Um, I've already posted, if you, if you don't remember. Um, I have pictures of a lot of what these characters look like. Um, I very often use actors, actresses, and celebrities um, as this is what this person looks like. That way, when I'm telling the story, the people who are playing the game with me, we're all imagining the same type of thing. I didn't do that very early on, and then when we'd go to find, hey, who would you have play this role? We were looking at very different people. So it helped me a lot of times when I had NPCs to have that already ready and saying, and this is what he looks like. And I can show him a picture, and everybody's like, okay, cool. Now we all think that same face. So if I'm naming a character, a lot of these characters you can find on OnlyDraven.com under the Characters page. I will be adding a bunch more in the next couple of weeks. Um, but yes, I believe Zach and Twill are up there. If they're not, I will add them after this today, because I should have Zach and Twill up there. So, ah, Neon, thank you very much. There is a link to the page on the website. And of course, free zip in there and take a look at any chance you have. So, well met, Gray Man, Darsh says, climbing off his huge horse that he had to buy. Was wondering when you was going to show your face again. Zotan nods slowly and says, and I, and I must regret that it took so long. But before we get into that, please let me say how sorry I am to hear of the fate of your friends. I searched for them long, and now that I know what has become of them, it explains why I was unable to find them when I searched. So I, I apologize for their loss. I also apologize for what you had to do to get a hold of the fire gem. I know that Zarin was once your friend, and whether or not he attacked you first, it could not be easy having to kill one that you once considered friend and family. I must ask, though, did you ever find anything about Fig? Darsh shows no change of emotion. Straight face goes, no. Nothing yet, but we'll continue to look. I mean, the fact that Michael hadn't raised him is a good sign. Maybe he's still out there somewhere. So we'll definitely keep looking. Sultan says, as will I. If I hear anything about where he may be or anything about him, I will definitely get that information to you as quickly as I can. But time is short, and I can't stay long. Being here even now draws too much attention to myself and to you, and there are many forces out there already opposing us. You have gathered five of the stones so far, and there are two left you must get. I have a way of getting you to the next one. And they're like, oh, good, 
because we didn't know where they were, and it's about time you were useful. They didn't say it that way. Darsh heavily implies it, and Mercy snickers. Artemis gives him a, dan a, a bit of a dirty look, because those two blatantly don't like Zoltan. <laughs> you know, Artemis is under you know, it's political, I understand it, and then Danny just doesn't know what to do. She giggles when that happens. Um, he says, yes. But to get there, I must give you this. And pulling his hands from his robes, he pulls out a key. Now, this is a large key. It's about that long. So I guess if you're listening to audio podcast, five, six inches long. Um, and the key itself, you know, it's the old style kind of key with a little hoop on one end, and it's a straight bar, and then the little teeth come down. But it has one tooth basically coming down, and it's probably about an inch wide. It's like it's just a square that sticks off the bottom of the rod. Okay? He hands it to them, and they look at it, and it's not a metal that they're familiar with. It's not iron or brass, bronze, even steel, something that they would expect. But it does have a bit of a familiar look to it, although they, they're, they're all looking at it like I can't place it. And they're like, what's this for? And he says, that's going to take you where you need to go. Something has happened on this new world we find ourselves on. Granted, they've been here a couple years at this point, but technically it's still a new world. Something of an epic proportion has happened on the world and I don't know how it was completed. I don't know who did it or why. But in random locations, it would seem, throughout the land, these arches have appeared. These arches, uh, for those of you thinking, imagine half of a McDonald's arch, but not yellow. Best way to explain it. These, they average, I think we said about 13 to 15 feet tall. So you go, some of them are even larger. Some of them are even smaller. But they've just suddenly appeared at different locations across the land, at great distances apart. Because this new world is huge. It's massive. It would take years to cross, even by foot or by horse. And he says, these portals, or these arches have appeared, and they're of a material that I cannot define. Even my magic cannot scratch nor affect them. Something or someone of great power has created these, and they were not here. There's one not far from here, underneath what, you, what the humans call the Valley of Sacrifice, where the citadel fell. And they're like, that's where we saw this. Yes, the key is made out of the same metal. We found that, and it seemed like it was, you know, not man-made. There were no tool marks or anything like that, but at the same time, it clearly wasn't natural. Because all goes, yes, exactly. What these are, in fact, are portals. They're a gateway. And each one has its own name of a sort. It's actually a verbal construct of a rune structure, um, rune magic. So if you know the name of the rune for the gate that you're seeking, you can open a portal and instantly transfer yourself from that portal to the other portal. And using the key, you basically just put it in the arch, not in the physical arch, but the space within the arch. And not only, you will immediately know, it'll tell you the name of the gate you're at. So you can get back. It tells you that. But it doesn't tell you anywhere else. You have to know the arch you want to go to in order to get there. He goes, there is an arch not far from another stone. It's the only one I've found so far. But there's one more stone out there. And it is very, very far. It would take you months of travel to the west to get to this location. But if you use the portal in the Valley of Sacrifice, you'll be there instantaneously. And once you go through the portal, if you continue west, 
it shouldn't take you but maybe another day's travel to get to this location to get the, to get this gem and then we return back through the portal value sacrifice then you have to travel this you know several days to the week it takes to get to Paxwell but that's still way shorter than trying to go all the way over there by foot or by boat he goes, I give you this key. He gave it to him already. He goes, I give you this key. It is yours. You will need it on your travels. I'm entrusting it to you. It's the only one that I found, though I can tell you this. There are other keys out there. Who has them, I cannot tell you. I only know that there are more keys. Some of them are in the hands of people. Some of them may be lost in treasures not seen in a thousand years. How did a new key for a new portal get there? I can't tell you. I don't know. But something or someone of great power is affecting things in this new world almost of a omnipotent force. In other words, he's hinting godlike. But everybody here knows the gods cannot physically come to the world. This magical shield that's around this new world keeps the gods from taking any avatar or physical form upon it. Um, and that's part of what their quest is, of course. They're trying to get all these stones so they can get all the magical artifact weapons back, and then Zoltan can use the artifact weapons to hopefully break that shield so that at that point the gods can get in and then everybody who wants to can go back home to the world that they came from. It's been the whole goal here the whole time. So they're like, okay, well, do you have any other help for us? He goes, not at this time, but I will continue looking for the last gem and I will come to you and tell you more as I find it. Begrudgingly, they thank him. Um, he clearly knows everything they've been going through so far because he already talked about Michael and such, so he's definitely been keeping an eye on them. They think it's a little odd that he's not popped up and said anything, but uh, they take the key and they accept it. So he also tells them the magic rune word for the other gate. I apologize, I do not have it. I never bothered to actually name them. It's a magic word. I'm not going to come up with 30 alakazams unless it's important later. But down the road, I may, I may do that. But at this point, they know the magical rune word to be able to go to the portal they need to get to. So they return to Paxwell. Now they have a goal. They go to the temple, tell them what's happened, tell them about Zoltan and the key. Um, of course, the clerics are like, this key in these arches, that's big business. I mean, that's, that's seriously powerful magic to do something of that nature. And if your demigod doesn't even know who did it, that definitely concerns us a lot. So they're going to start looking into some of that stuff. But now that they have that information, they can port the, give that over to the mage tower. And the mages uh, might be able to use that information to come up with some more answers as well. I know a lot of people might say, well, if a demigod can't do it, why can't, why, what makes you think mages could? Uh, if we've learned one thing from any form of mythology, uh, the ability of man or mankind to uh, pull off things that even the gods couldn't fathom <laughs> in any classic mythology. That happened a lot. Humans mess up everything. <laughs> So they go back, they pack their gear. They've only been home a couple of days at this point. They're hoping to get a little bit of a rest, but if they, the quicker they can get these stones, the quicker they get to the end goal. So they pack up their stuff and prepare to leave. They let Molly know, of course, that they're leaving. Darsh has time to eat one more pie, thankfully. Uh, let them know they're leaving again. Uh, they wish they could stay, but unfortunately, they cannot. They have to continue on their quest. Hello, Willie Glow. Thank you for coming by the channel today. Appreciate you stopping by the stream. Get a drink here. So, they get the gear they need, they quickly run around. Darsh does get over to the Minter area, and he gets his dragon scale shield. Very happy about that. He has a green dragon scale shield now. Very phenomenally made, and 
not only, of course, does it give magical bonuses and buffs of that nature because of it, stronger defense and such, it does make him immune from the breath weapon of a green dragon, which would be basically acidic, smoky kind of stuff. Um, so, bonuses for him. So he's got that. Um, Dandy does not have time to go and check in with the Thieves Guild because they're in and out really quick. Uh, they do have a quick chance to swing by the Mage Tower and say they're, where they're going, um, and they tell them what they've learned from the demigod about the arches. And even though he's just returned home as well, Tobias is there with Lamia, and he looks at Lamia, and Lamia nods. He's like, I'm coming with you. If there's a massive artifact out there that are popping up all over the world and we don't have it, we have to know. And at this point, Tobias is becoming very quickly Lamia's go-to guy when it comes to magic items and artifacts. If you remember, that's Lamia's specialty, the creation and research of magic item artifacts, and it's also what Tobias does. It's what kind of got him on her radar. <clears throat> and he's very quickly going up the ranks with his natural aptitude for that. He can do other regular magic stuff like a mage can too, but his specialty is the creation and research of magical items and artifacts. So he, he's like, I'm coming with you. And they're like, of course, yeah, definitely. We'd love to have a mage with us. Always helpful. And Tobias is someone they know they can count on. So he grabs his gear, packs it all up, and the next day they head out and start heading towards the Valley of Sacrifice, which, as we know, takes a few days to get there. I think it's like a week, he said, at this point. They're hurrying, but it's around a week. When they finally get to the Valley of Sacrifice, uh, they have no choice uh, but to leave their horses. And they basically kind of leave them to relatively free roam. As I mentioned when we were here last time, lots of long grass. There's even maybe a little bit of streams there. So they're going to have to let them free roam and hope they're still there. They didn't really think that ahead, I remember. It's the first time they really brought horses with them on an adventure. Um, they're like, can we take them through the gate? And I said, yes, they could. But then they're like, well, we don't know what's on the other side of the gate. Maybe we should wait. So they decide to leave the horses there. So that's what they did. And then... They, they approach the gate itself. Now, the gate, as just the, the which for the record, they're known, they're known as realm gates, by the way, is the name that I've given them. But the realm gates, again, are a large arch. They go down these stairs inside the rubble of the, what was the flying citadel that crashed to the ground. They go down the tunnel, down the stairs, and there it is just sitting there in a room that's not dark, slightly lit, although there's no light source. Now, they get a lot of directions on how to use the key. Um, Artemis has it. Tobias takes it, and he's like, oh, let me step up here. Casts a couple basic spells, and he goes, the, it's not showing that any of this is magical. The key doesn't show as magical. The arch doesn't show as magical. So I don't know how this is supposed to work. But he walks up and just kind of takes it and moves it into the center of the arch. And the second that he does, there's like a pop sound. And I would compare it kind of a mixture of like the Stargate, but without water. You know what I mean? Imagine if it was like a purplish thing. And it's flat. Like, if you go to the other side and you look on the other side, it's just purple. You know, if you stick your hand in, it doesn't come out the other side. It's going to go out to where the other realm gate is. <clears throat> and as soon as he puts the key in, he's like, he just says a word. And they're like, what's that? He goes, that's the name of this realm gate. As soon as I used the key, I knew the name of this gate. And he tells them, so now they all know. So as long as they have this key, they can open a portal from any realm gate that they come across to this portal. This is another way that I've used uh, within the story to allow people to travel great distances. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, as I've said before, this world is massive, but to be able to move with any type of real time, 
you have to have a way to do that. You know what I mean? And so the realm gates became a way for me to be able to help people get around. It's also important in the story as well. But from a practical standpoint, having them travel three and four weeks every time they have to go somewhere and then travel three and four weeks back and then each time they got to go a little bit further and back, it's just not good for time. I mean, every adventure, they're going to age one to two years and I didn't have time for that. <coughs> Excuse me. Hmm. Take a quick sip here. Hmm. So, they're like, cool. So they're like, okay. Now that he has the key in there, the key just sits there. It's like he can let go and it's just kind of sitting there. He can pull it out and he does and the thing goes away. <clears throat> he puts it in again, pops back up. And then he does kind of what the instructions they were given. <clears throat> he says the name of the gate they want to go to and then he turns the key. And when he does that, there's a visual change the purple begins to swirl. Like, say there was like a cloud, just kind of a light thing, but now it's just swirling. And the key comes out, but the gate stays open. And there's a period of time that you have to go through. And it can depend on the size of the gate. Because I mentioned, not all gates are the same size. This one here was an average 13 to 14 feet high, about 7 to 8 feet wide at the base. So they could all go in side by side if they went right next to each other. Darsh goes first. He's like, I'm going to go first. If there's something bad on the other side, I'm the biggest one here. Normally they send Dandy out, but they don't know what's on the other side. So he goes, I'm going to go first. Mercy's going to come last, because that's always the party order. We want to make sure nobody's sneaking in from behind. So they go through the portal. Now, unlike the Stargate concept, it doesn't have the cool swirly zipping all over the place. You literally walk in, and to you, it's only, it's like walking through a door. Imagine that was full of smoke. Uh, that was about six inches deep. So you're walking through six inches of smoke. You can't see through it, but as soon as you're through the smoke, you're on, uh, coming out the other portal. And they, and he does. Darsha's first one out. He told them to give him a minute. He puts his hand back through. It goes like this. <laughs> he can't see his own hand. Then he steps away, and sure enough, Dandy comes through next. And everyone starts coming through. They begin looking around, and after a minute of looking, the portal makes that noise again, and it disappears. <clears throat> so they know the name of this portal. They could come to it any time they want. What they don't know is where this portal is in the world. They only knew it was really far to the west. And that's one problem with the portal system. If you're just going to a random portal, someone says, here's a portal word, go to this one. You don't know where in the world that is if someone doesn't tell you. You don't learn that by having the key. You have to figure that out on your own. So coming across the gate, on the other hand, is a, is a more positive experience. Because like, oh, hey, I found a gate. I already know where another gate is. Now I can come back and forth to these ones. And that happens sometimes, too. They find themselves on a hill. Grassy hill, kind of damp. The sky is a little cloudy, like it's rained recently. But at the base of the hill, they're on an arch, which is almost the exact same size as the one they came out of. Right on the top of the center of this hill. But all around the hill, it goes down by about five or six feet and then levels off and it's just swamp in every direction. Now, when I say swamp, I want you to picture swampy with the vegetation and such, but not tons of thick trees. You can see a good distance. There's only a few trees popping up every so often, 
but it's just swampy and you see leaves and vines all through it. You hear frogs croaking, you see a snake coming through, maybe some fish flipping in the water, that kind of stuff. So it has that swamp smell and sound to it, but it's not heavily treed. It does have heavy vegetation. And at sometimes, Dandy being as short as she is, even if she was standing on dry ground, the vegetation still may go a little higher than her, but none of it reaches Darsh's What's he at? Like 12 feet tall, I think, at this point. 12, 13. I'd have to find it. Speaking of that, just as a quick aside, I went through, I mentioned last week that I found a box uh, of D&D stuff that I packed up eight years ago and I moved out of my old apartment and never opened. Just been sitting in my closet. I went through it today and it was all of these guys' character sheets and every notepad, scratch pad they'd used for years. From the treasure that they got, how much money they had, maps they'd drawn, uh, puzzles they'd had to figure out. It was kind of cool going through all that. Um, so I actually have a list of some of the magic items and stuff they were carrying at some point, which I'd forgotten some of those. So that was kind of interesting. I just wanted to throw that at you. I will definitely be showing off some of that here in the near future. Um, but yeah, so they're like, okay, here we are, swamp, yay. Um, not happy about that. They didn't know it was going to be a swamp. But luckily, Zoltan did tell them to continue west. And even though it's kind of muggy outside, you can't really see which way is west right now. Tobias, their mage friend, has a spell that will tell him the direction. He does that. And they then are like, okay, well, let's go west. I'm glad we didn't bring the horses, because we definitely don't want to bring any horses through a nasty swamp. If any of you have seen Never Ending Story, we all know that never turns out well for the horse. So, they continue west. <clears throat> and occasionally they come across hills or relatively dry spots where they can stop and rest a few minutes. Sometimes the water will be up to um, Artemis and Mercy's chest, which to Dandy's over her head at some point. Uh, so there's sometimes where literally Darsh is picking up and carrying her. Uh, Tobias is just under six feet. He's like five, ten and a half, I think he was. Uh, so he's taller than anyone here except for um, Darsh, because uh, historically the characters were all relatively short. Even Mercy, who's a human, was on the shorter side. I want to say she was like five, four or five, five. And Artemis was right about the same height. She was an inch or two shorter. Dandy's barely three feet. So Darsh has to carry her at some point, which, you know, she gets a kick out of, but, you know, makes lots of jokes about him being her mount and such. And he doesn't like that, but. Once in a while, the one time he accidentally tripped and dropped her in the water. She made a little less jokes after that. I remember that. But they continue to travel through the swamp. Now, as they're traveling through the swamp, they do have a couple of small mini-adventures. They come across a... Uh, uh, let me see. What did they fight in the swamp? I actually have it here. They came across some zombies. There was actually some mud zombies, which are usually zombies that die in the swamp. They're a little less decomposed as you normally find, because the water kind of, they usually are under the water, and they'll grab you as you're coming through, and that's when they start to rise. So they had to fight a couple of those as they came through, and they even fought a small hydra. That was a big fight for them. Um, <clears throat> the hydra uh, had what, three or four heads at the beginning, and it grew a couple more throughout the fight, but they eventually learned how to do that, and they were able to defeat the hydra. Um, those were the two big things they had to do just going through the swamp. Neither of these situations did they get any treasure or loot or anything of that nature, but um, it did give them some things to deal with. They had to start going a little bit slower and being a bit more careful because they did see other signs of big monsters. There was one other fight in here. And this one, while not major, became a notorious pun for us. At one point... Um, I was just talking about the water and such. Because every so often I have to say how it's deeper now or it's, it's more shallow and such. 
And at one point, I said, knee-deep. They're like, okay, cool, we keep walking. And I kept saying, knee-deep. And they're like, yes, we get it, knee-deep. And I say, knee-deep. And they're like, why do you keep saying knee-deep? I said, I'm not saying knee-deep. They're saying knee-deep. And they're like, huh? And they turn, and there's these giant, uh, there's like frog warriors that attack them. You know, knee-deep was their ribbit kind of noise, and they attacked them. It was just, be- knee-deep became a running gag for us after that. <clears throat> Every time I say knee-deep, they're like, are there frog people? <laughs> just became a thing. Um, there's a lot of little moments like that in stories. If you play D&D, or if you've ever been a part of any type of role-playing group at all, um, or just friends hanging out, you know, you always get those inside jokes or running gags. There's a lot of them in D&D, and some of them I breezed over, some of them I'm going to mention, but the knee-deep one is one of the early ones that we remember. <clears throat> so, they, they fought those as well. So there's the mud zombies, then there was the knee-deeps, uh, and then there was the uh, hydra was the big one. Eventually, as they're traveling, they start to hear a sound like water. And obviously, they're surrounded by water. Um, but the water sound that they hear is almost like either rapids or a waterfall. You know, what you'd hear when you can hear water falling in the distance. And as they're walking, they can see that the water that's well, has always had a bit of a current and swirls and such, now all seems to be moving a little bit faster in one direction, the direction they're going. So they have to be a lot more careful not to slip and fall because now there's a current. And that gave them some, they had to roll some checks to make sure nobody slipped and fell in the water. Some D&D classic technical stuff, um, but everybody was relatively successful. I want to say Artemis fell in the water once, but they managed to get her out, and everybody made it okay. Uh, at one point, they actually tied themselves together, which was a very common thing that they would do in places where they couldn't see or things of that nature. They would get ropes and tie each other together so that if one fell or something, everybody else would be ready to brace and kind of catch the person. Especially if you're walking through deep water, that's a great thing to do. Darsh is really tall, but he steps in a, a hole that goes down 20, 30 feet, He's heavy. It's 300 plus pounds, plus his weapons and armor. It would take all of them, if that, to be able to pull him back up. So these are things that they're aware of. He's got a huge stick, and he was checking to make sure in front of them. They, they, they were pretty smart about it. So, as the water gets louder, the vegetation picks up just a bit more as well. There are trees growing. And what they notice is that the trees that are growing here are not the type of trees you would find in a swamp. Few of them are. The younger trees, but the older trees are really like old oak trees and even some evergreen trees. Things that now have vines and stuff growing up all over them, but they're not the type of trees you would normally find growing in a swamp. Is this part of the whole merge? They don't know. So, as they're walking forward, the trees get thicker. Now they're having to cut through vines. Darcy's chopping some stuff. And then abruptly, he comes to a stop. Because if he went much further, he was going to fall. In front of him, the water, as the current's been going, hits what would be a waterfall. But instead of going off the waterfall, the water then turns and is going counterclockwise in a massive hole. Massive hole. Now, from the edge of that hole... About 15 to 16 feet away is a floating island. Piers floating. It actually goes down. It's not floating. It's just, it's landed and there's a hole and it goes all the way down. Now, water is flowing off of the island. On top of the island is a giant castle. Or a keep. A castle of unknown origins. I'll describe it more in a moment. 
but a castle or building. And water is flowing out of its doors and out of its windows, and it's old and it's covered in vines, and the water is just falling off the sides. That's why I say it looks like an island, because you can't see much through the water. It's just pouring out all over the place. And if you were to look down, you can't see the bottom. Water just goes down super far. But the water on the outside, that's swirling, the water, instead of falling off the waterfall, the water is coming up. And as it reaches the edge by where the characters are standing, it comes up and becomes part of this current that is just moving around the top and then kind of dissipates off and pulls and pushes from different parts of the swamp in different directions. So they saw the water was coming in, but it being pushed and maybe going off a different direction on the other side. So this is what they see. Now, they see the water in front of them. Now, eventually they have to assume that that cliff stops. How much is that just water? It's hard to see. It's murky, swampy water. So they, it's hard to see. But they do the thing where, you know, like I said, they're, they're holding a rope and Darsh goes out as far as he can see and he's poking with it. And they see, okay, they can only go a short distance. It's about where they're at, about three feet deep when it hits the edge. But they've got, like I said, 15, 16 feet before the island. On the other side of that island, there's not much land outside of the keep. Maybe six to eight feet. It's not perfectly round. It's jagged. It's like the land around it collapsed. Would be a good way to describe it. So it's like a donut and then is the hole and then the, the donut hole itself is the island. And again, it's water coming out of it. It's cracked in different places like the pressure of water and it's just leaking out the doors and windows and all flowing off. Well, this clearly doesn't look normal. And surprisingly, they would think you would think with all this water, this is where they'd find the water gem. But they already have the water gem. So which gem is this? Is it the earth gem, which they assume is out there somewhere? Or could it be this mystery last gem that they don't know which one it is? Either case, they know they have to get inside this castle. It's just too weird in the exact direction they were told to go to not be important. So they had to come up with a plan. Yes, there were a couple old trees on the other side. Um, Darsh was strong enough to be able to throw a grappling hook. It took several tries because he had to roll for it. So he doesn't have any type of special grappling skills. He's not even throwing it up. He's basically throwing it across. It took him a bit to be able to snag a tree. But the trees did not seem super sturdy. And Darsh was drastically concerned that his weight would pull them down. Dandy being the lightest, it was determined that she would go across. They tied off on their side. And as long as they stays pretty sturdy, Dandy was, was her dexterity is so high, tight rope walking and stuff was not hard for her. Incredibly nimble. We've talked about it before. <clears throat> she successfully makes it across just fine. At that point, she takes the grappling hook and she finds a more secure location. Part of the wall had collapsed on one part. She's managed to hook it in real good on the stone, make sure it's not going to break. Because, in fact, yes, the tree was relatively rotted and had Darsh or even Mercy in her armor tried to come across, it probably would have ripped right through the wood and there would have been problems. <clears throat> Artemis and Tobias. Not strong people. They're casters, they're clerics. So, hand over hand, or trying to get across 15 feet on the rope. 15 feet doesn't sound like a lot. But if you've never done it, you try to get on a rope and try to go hand over hand without that experience, you're going to have a bad day. It is not easy. Okay? Especially people who don't do that. And they're, they're very good healthy. They travel, they walk around all the places, and, you know, they're not like fat or anything like that. But still, that's not the kind of thing they do. Mercy? No problem. 
in great shape, even with the weight of her armor and her gear, she can get across. Darsh, same situation. Their concern is that the rope would break. We did roll for that. In this situation, it did not break. Early on, they asked to buy sturdier rope than normal, and I charged them more for it because they knew Darsh would have to climb something eventually. So I allowed them to buy heavy-duty, expensive rope so they have the chest of holding. That's normally where they store that. So Mercy goes over next, all right? because they don't know what's in this castle. And if something bad comes out, they need someone to be able to help Dandy. Mercy wants to be over there. And they want to leave Darsh on that side because if something does happen and the rope snaps, he's the strongest. If anybody can hold on to it, he's going to be the best to brace it. <clears throat> so he's going to go over last. Because it's assumed if there's a problem, it's going to take all four of them to try to. What Tobias has uh, is not a levitate spell, but a light spell. And I don't mean light as in flash of light, bright lights. It's a spell of basically making you weightless. And he casts that on both himself and Artemis. He doesn't cast it on everybody, because the amount that it affected wouldn't have been a big enough difference for Darsh. But for the two of them, and this does take a couple of the spells he can cast a day, and they hadn't really fought anything big yet, and they knew they probably were going to, so they didn't blow through all their spells. They cast it on he and Artemis. So basically, they're just floating, and they're just using the rope to pull themselves across. They had to be very careful, because it wasn't super windy, but there was some kind of a draft, and there was the fear that it would pull them down, because they're basically weightless. Nothing's pushing them up, pushing them down. A wind could blow them anywhere. So they still had to hold onto the rope tight, but they were able to pull themselves across. Once they're over there, he canceled that spell, and once he did, they get back to regular weight. At this point, it's Darsh's turn to come across, and this is the one they've been worried about the most. On his end, Darsh's like, okay, I'm going to go over basically hand and feet. Darsh is incredibly strong. He's also got the most amount of stuff on him. His shield alone, everybody but Mercy would have a hard time lifting, and Mercy might struggle with it, because it's a large shield. It's a minotaur-sized shield. It's made for him custom. You know, a lot of times they can trade off weapons if they need to, and even though it may be a little big for her, or his, her weapon may be a little small for him, they can still use it with pretty much ease. But this shield, she would have a difficulty using. So it's strapped to his back, as is his battle axe, and he's got his swords, and some javelins strapped in there. Darsh is a walking armory. Mercy is too, but in a different way. Because uh, she's got a lot of her stuff in the chest of holding. Uh, Draven, is Darsh's shield a tower shield? It is not a tower shield, depending on your, your design of tower shield. Tower shields historically are known as the long, rectangular kind. His is curved to a point at the bottom, but imagine a three-quarters of a tower shield, and then curves to a point at the bottom. So, it's not all that way long, because again, you imagine a tower shield for a minotaur who stands 13 feet tall, you're thinking of it, basically at that point, they're carrying a door. You know, and he doesn't need one that big um, because he's also nimble. He doesn't want something like that weighing him down, at least in the style that he fights. Because occasionally he'll fight two handed. He's not ambidextrous, so he gets a negative when fighting with the other hand. Um, but he can if he needs to. So he wants something that he can use. Uh, and, and using it as a way of just hitting things, very successful as well because it's very sturdy. He can smack somebody with that shield and do some serious damage. Um, but it is, like I said, about not not a full tower shield in in, in design. Uh, Minecraft, was, I'm insane. Very accurate. <laughs> Very accurate. <laughs> so that being said, he gets across successfully. They leave the rope and the grappling hook where it is. 
A, so they know which direction to go back out when they come out of here. Because Swamp is not easy to tell your direction. And who knows what they're going to do in there if Tobias is going to be able to cast another direction spell. So they leave that there. Besides, they have lots of rope. Working their way around the castle, they find basically one main entrance. There's another entrance on the back. There actually two of them that were smaller doors, but the water flowing out of them was such intensity, it would be hard to get through. The main door, which is the big double door, and it's cracked, water's flowing out of it shin deep. Now, I mentioned I wanted to talk about what the castle itself looked like. The castle, if we were to design it, is going to look more like what you'd find in... Um, Aladdin, that style, if you will. Uh, let me see here. Um, Willow Glow says, do you come up with these yourself? Yes, I. this is all home. I mean, some of the monsters and stuff, it's Dungeons and Dragons when I ran this, so some of the monsters, I pulled out some of the races of people, but the world and the design of everything, that's all me. I, I, it's a homebrew world, merged world is my complete design. I've got my own pantheon of gods, the gems they're looking after. I started before the whole Infinity War thing came big, and a lot of people have said, oh, did you take that from Infinity War? I actually hadn't read Infinity War when I came up with this. They just kind of have the same kind of basic idea. Um, but, yes. Um, like I said, I, I do write all this myself. Uh, and Pan, you're insane. I really like to watch your tutorials. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I'm glad to hear they are helpful for you. Um, so, they find this door that they can squeeze through. Darcy only has got to squeeze through. Everybody else can go through pretty easily. Um, but as you go in, right, as you make your way in through the door, um, there is water flowing through, and it's a big courtyard. But it's that type of building from, like, Aladdin, with the big kind of bubbly things on the top of the four towers and such. Um, and you make it through, and when you do, you're in a big room, and there's stairs going up several di different areas and the middle of the floor has collapsed and water is flowing down and water's coming down the stairs. So the water does appear to be coming from the upper levels and it's going to come rolling down there and then it's coming down into the center room and if, if you were to get close enough and they can look down, they can see that there's like a large pool and what was a, a basement floor, if you will. Um... Uh, Willow Glow, you're awesome at making stories and stuff. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I've been doing it a very long time. Like I said, this story itself, I've been writing over... 1993-94 is when I really started this storyline. So, a long time. I'm very old. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, that's where they're at here. Um, yes, it's on Spotify, and it's also on iTunes if you're an Apple user. For an audio version of this, every episode... Uh, up to this point, they average between two and two and a half hours. I have them as an audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. If you've just tuned in, uh, you can listen to all these episodes there as well. This episode will be up by tomorrow afternoon as well. I usually have them up within 24 hours. Um, so yes, they're in this side place. So they have to figure out where they're going to go. So the middle of the floor is collapsed in. Probably from the weight of the water is what they're looking at. It's what they're thinking. Okay? Because um, it's not evenly broken. It's just like piece caled in. Now the bottom part, there's so much water, you don't want really to see if there's much rubble, but it's loud because there's just water coming from through cracks in the ceiling, down the walls, down the stairs and such, and pouring through. And so this is an issue. They're like, okay, well, we're going to assume up. Water's coming from up there with no source that we can see, right? That's got to be where the source of this issue is. 
So they decide, okay, we're going to try to go up. So they try to make their way around one of the stairs they can't get to because the ground is smashed too much around it. They couldn't. So they try to get around to the other side. And as they do, it collapses underneath their feet. Mostly because Darsh is, is a fatty. He's not a fatty. He's, he's a minotaur. He weighs 386 pounds, I believe his character sheet said today. That's without armor. That's just regular him nude. All the shield and the armor and stuff on, boom, he's right through. It collapses and all of them go falling into the center of the water. Now, because I'm a jerk, there are two giant crocodiles in that pool of water. This was their first situation inside the castle. So they had to fight these two giant crocodiles. They were successful, obviously. Um, but uh, Tobias did have to go through a couple of his uh, spells in order to defeat it. And Darsh was injured pretty heavily because he was the first one to go down. So as he falls in, he gets bit pretty hard. That's how they find it. So Artemis uses several of her healing spells pretty early in this stage of the adventure to get him back up to snuff. Uh, Glitch Vision says, This is Irony. I'm listening to a story about running water while I hear the small stream bubbling in my Sky Factory 4 farm. Ah, excellent. I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> so, they're down there and like, okay, we've got to find a way up. And there's different doors out of this way. There's a couple of them, and they have to figure out which route they're going to go. So they've got to find some way to get up there. There's nothing they can see to try to climb up in this room. Um, but there's a, the room itself clearly existed before. If there's a basement... There's got to be stairs. So they decide to try one of the doors. And they go through one of the doors. Um, and inside there is just a smaller... The room is smaller. And it's not as deep, it would seem. They can see the bottom. But the water is still murky. But across the other side of this wet room, they see some stairs that are going up. Now, the stairs are carved. They appear stone. They look relatively sturdy. So it's a solid stairway. There's nothing under it. So they believe that as long as it hasn't gotten too weak, they should be able to climb up that even with Darsh. And as they start going through the room, they fall. Artemis falls, I should say. Everybody had to roll a check. And as they roll their check, Artemis is the one that slips. And she falls. Well, she it's not deep. It's only like a foot and a half, two feet deep. Oh, well, thank you, Willow Glow. I appreciate that. I appreciate you checking those out. I'm very proud of this story, hopefully you can tell. So uh, I, I, I'd love to hear your feedback on some of the older episodes as well. I'd love to hear what you think. Um, so yes, she slips and falls. And she's, it's not that she's completely underwater, but she could just sit up and they grab her real quick and pull her up. They're not tied together at this point. But they do grab her and pull her up. And immediately Mercy's eyes go wide and, and Danny's like, <gasps> and she's like, what? And she's got leeches all over her. Uh, the water's just infested. And so they basically go tearing through the room as quickly as they can, making another set of rolls, and succeeding this time. They get through and they get up the stairs enough where the water's still coming down the stairs, but it's just about ankle deep at that point. So they're standing on the stairs, just their feet getting wet. Immediately they try to get these off, and they're fatty leeches, like they're big ones. And so they're having to, at points, burn them off and rip them off. And everybody has a couple on maybe their foot or their ankles, but Artemis has them all over. Just in the few seconds she was under, they latched on. So she quickly starts ripping off her robe and stuff, and they start pulling them off. And then she's, you know, they're taking off. And then she stops and realizes that she's pretty much naked because she's just wearing a flimsy white thing underneath, and it's soaking wet. And Tobias is trying to help without looking. Darsh doesn't care. <laughs> Darsh is just ripping off stuff, burning them off, cutting them off where they have to. And of course... Same. But Tobias is just trying not to look, and Ar Artemis isn't embarrassed, 
But for him, she's because he, he's a young guy, you know. There's this beautiful elf lady in front of him, soaking wet, half naked. And at this point, she has to pull up shirts and stuff to pull off leeches. Um, and it be that is another one of those running gags that we used. Um, anytime someone showed uh, interest in in uh, Artemis, I'd yell leeches, and she's like, "I'm not taking my clothes." <laughs> Just a running thing that came there. But they finally get all those off. And she has to use some more heels on herself. Because she now she has these big wounds on her. Because they were these were not regular normal leeches. They're D&D magic leeches. So they were a little bit more powerful. They get all those off. They make their way back up the stairs. And when they come up the stairs at this point, they're in another room. They're not in that main chamber. And they hear splashing on the other side of the chamber. Because there's another set of doors. Which their layout is like, I believe that leads to the big room, and you hear splashing, which you can hear the sound coming from the second floor. So as they go through this room, and again, being extra careful, because now they're worried about it collapsing. So they're trying to stay to the outside of the room as much as possible, where it would be the sturdiest. And now they do start tying each other together again. So if it does crumble under someone, they can try to hold on. Mercy's at the back, literally with no weapons. And that's not something that she normally does. In the back, she's rear guard, right? Artemis is in front of her. She always wants to protect Artemis. She would do that. But in this situation, she's literally walking with one hand holding on, and the other hand is a grappling hook. Because if something happens and Darsh falls, she has to try to latch that hook onto something. Because if she doesn't, his weight will probably pull them all under. They're tied together. He's a big guy. So at this point, one to brace herself along the wall, and one to try to... And she's every chance looking for cracks, anything she could stick it in at any chance, to try to hold that up there so that he won't... It would brace them. If that would even work. That's the hope. They make it around the room and go through the next doorway because the doors fell off long ago. And as they go through, they are surprised to find they're not alone in this room. What they come across is something called the Yuanti. That's how I pronounce it. It's Y-U-A-N-T hyphen U-I. Basically, if you will, it's like a snake man. Now, depending on your version of D&D, sometimes they're super genius demons, sometimes they're just regular snake men. In this situation, they're just regular snake men, and they're the ones that have basically taken residence here. They stand about six to seven feet tall, uh, bottom half of them literally snakes, but they have arms, regular arms, and they have weapons, and they also have a bite attack. And there are four of them in this room. Battle ensues. Uh, very luckily, they tried to bite several times, but no one was bit. Uh, Dandy being probably one of the most uh, beneficial people in here, because the snakes are moving through the water much easier than our, our characters are, and they're still worried about staying away from the middle of the floor. They feel a little bit a bit better about it, because here's these big snake dudes that obviously are a little heavy themselves running through this room, and it's not caving. But Darsh is still concerned, because they're jumping into this fight all tied together. Dandy slips out of the rope very quickly. She can do that. She's always ready to pull herself off there in an instant. She does. She slips out. And she's really the one that keeps them running and attacking from behind and such until they're successfully able to defeat them. But they now know that those may not be the only ones in here. And in fact, they're not. Over the next couple of rooms, they come across a couple more each time. Each time, same type of battle, fighting them. They finally make it back to the main room, and at this point, they're coming out a doorway next to that one set of stairs I said that goes up that they couldn't get to before because of the way the hole was, but they managed to go up those stairs. And I know this may seem a little bit detailed, but I kind of give you what they went through at this point. Plus, we're finally at the point that I have all these notes <laughs> so I can reference them. Um, and they make it all the way up to the top. Now, when they walk into this room, 
it's what you would picture a fancy room would be. Cloth drapings, tapestries on the wall, big fancy cushions and such. They would be sat on, no real chairs per se, a huge bed kind of thing. But it's like a, I guess you'd say, a, a one-room apartment, say it that way. So it's got a sleeping area, it's got desk tables and things for eating and all that stuff. Now that's what it looked like in good days. Now it's all rotted. The pillows are soaking wet. The water's on average ankle to knee deep in this area. Um, and the water appears to be coming from, there are four big, um, you should say pots, if you will, big vases. They're probably about that big around, probably the size of about the average hubcap um, at the top. And the water is just flowing out of each corner and pouring down into the floor. So that's odd, because that means there's a lot of water coming out of those four things. Now, the tapers used stuff that I mentioned are mostly rotted at this point. Vines and things have grown over them. Like I said, the pillows are down in the water, and it's just completely covered in moss and stuff at this point. The bed's kind of the same way. Uh, the only thing that's not moss-covered would be the creature floating above it. So floating above the bed is your classic djinn, or genie, depending on how you want to say that. A genie and a djinn, which is D-J-I-N-N, there are differences. This is a djinn, it's a form of genie. There is a djinn, and this one is green in color. And he flo he's floating, again, he doesn't have legs, your classic Aladdin-looking thing. But he's basically just standing there, and he's smiling. Before they could say anything, he says, It has been a long time since someone's come to this room, since someone came to my master's chamber. It's a long time I've gone without having someone to speak to. The creatures that crawl around the lower floors wouldn't dare to interrupt me, and they're not the kind of people I could talk to. It's so good to finally meet some people. It's been a hundred years at least since someone's walked up here. I'm so glad that you came. Sadly, though, I wish we had more time together, but by my master's wishes, I must protect the treasure. And for that, with my sadness, you will have to die. And he attacks. They don't get a chance to speak. Very polite guy, though, before he kills you. Very friendly in the way that he kills you. Very nice. I'm going to take a drink real quick. Dijin attacks. Now, in this battle... He has a physical form. Okay, he's here. He's trapped to this room. He will not... They figure out pretty quickly if they leave the room, he won't follow them out. But at the same time, it's not going to do them any good. He's guarding some type of treasure. They can only assume that the stone they're looking for is part of that. So, they have to fight. And he's powerful. Well beyond what they're going to be able to handle. And they're attacking and such. Um, and they're getting some good hits in. Oh, take away from them. Darsh especially. Darsh and Mercy, by this point, are equipped well enough and are uh, got a couple levels under their belt where they've got some serious skills that they can put out a pretty good chunk of damage. Um, Artemis and Tobias, themselves also not shabby, but they've used over half of their spells each at this point. Um, the fights leading up to this were tough. They were meant to be. And they used a lot of their magic for the day and is spent. And they won't have that magic back until they can rest, study, and pray. 
You can't do that in the middle of a fight. Dandy's doing her best to try to help wherever she can. She starts off with ranged at first, but most of the stones and even the steel pellets that she carries at this point for her staff sling kind of bounce off him with very little effect. Um, Mercy even has to switch from her morning star because the blunt weapon doesn't seem to be doing as much, and she switches to a sword, uh, which appears to do more damage, but it also draws a bit more attention on her. Darsh primarily uses the sword anyways, so he's sword and shield, and he's trying to stay in front of Artemis and Tobias to use his big shield and his big body to block any of the magic that the Jijin is using against Artemis and Tobias. Because that's his target. He keeps trying to get past them to get the magic users. He's not stupid. Always take out the magic users first. So some spells are cast, and his spells are very water-oriented. He makes the water come up under their feet. Artemis and several of the characters fall at that point. Everyone except Dandy and Darsh fell in that situation. Darsh, just because of his size, the water didn't affect him as bad, and Dandy's so agile she keeps her feet under and that happens several times throughout the fight, that the water will wave real fast one way like a current, or sometimes it'll come up and knock a specific person over. And each time it does damage, they have to roll to see whether they fall down and potentially drown, because if they fall under the water, the water holds them down. They can't get up unless someone actually comes and pulls them up, which means someone has to sacrifice their attack for that round, their ability to fight go and pull that person up. And that happens several times over several people. Darsh being one of the only people that because of his size, fortunately, it was a very small chance of him being knocked over and he doesn't fall at any time. Um, but him having to waste a round to pull somebody up really hurts them. And as the battle is going through, they're losing. The Dijin is, is not only does he have physical attacks, he's not using weapons, but just his fists are like being hit with a tree. So the, the thing is probably Darsh size without legs, um, but it's very, very powerful. It's got a lot of strength behind that. And they're losing. It's at this point that Dandy, finally, after multiple rounds, decides to, instead of attacking the Dijin, she attacks one of those pots of water. She just basically, because she was near one, just takes her staff, which again has a metal point at the end, and as hard as she can, she basically stabs at it. She doesn't want to smack it and break her stick. She doesn't know how sturdy this is, but she comes at it with the metal point, which is very sharp. Roll her successful attack, and the thing shatters. At that moment, all the water basically falls. You know, like the water that was coming up and swirling and that the Dijin was using against them, it all falls, and the Dijin falls back, obviously affected. He flickers for just a moment. Everybody sees that, and immediately everybody starts going for the, for the um, other three pots in the corner. Um, Artemis and Tobias start going towards one another corner. Darsh starts going to another one, and Mercy is trying to hold the Dijin's attention. She stays there while Dandy tries to go get the last one. The Dijin is not fooled by this and uses all of his water powers to knock Mercy back. While he does that, it allows Darsh to get to one pot, which he breaks. Each one that breaks, the Dijin gets weaker. Um, he doesn't have as much control over the water, which means the chance that it can knock them over or make them fall is less. When they roll, they have a better chance of being successful. The slowest one to get there is going to be Tobias and Artemis, because again, they're trying to go through water in robes, and they're the least agile. Artemis isn't bad being an elf, but still, this isn't what she does. Dandy gets to hers, and even before she gets there, she starts whipping a slingstone, and as the slingstone hits it, 
it shatters again. So she doesn't have to get close enough. It breaks. Darsh with his, doesn't even stop. He just runs straight into it with his shield against the wall. And it just explodes. Artemis and Tobias get there and Artemis starts hitting it with her staff. Now remember, her staff has one of the gems on it. It's a staff of healing. So it's stronger than a normal staff. But her strength isn't breaking it. Which is odd, because technically she's probably stronger than Dandy is. And Dandy's done it twice. But with each one that breaks, the other ones were getting stronger. And they weren't realizing this at first, because again, Dandy breaks it. It's a second one. A little bit stronger, but not completely. The third one was, was again, double strong again. But that doesn't mean anything when you've got Darsh coming like a train at it. He just went through it like it didn't matter. That made that last one extra strong. And they're literally... And Tobias, he used the staff as well. And they're smacking... They're both smacking on it. It's not doing much. And the Dijin comes up and literally tries to grab them with water. Again, basically try and put bottles of water... Globes of water over their head to drown them. Um, but Mercy is just... Starts going to town. The Dijin is ignoring it, even though she's rending his genie flesh, flesh off. You can see him bleeding his own blood, which is greenish, like a thicker green. But he's slashing at that, and it's coming off. He's just ignoring them while these bo- he's got these globes of water over Artemis and um, Tobias's heads, and they're they can't breathe at this point. <laughs> it was at this point that from the side this huge thing comes flying through the air. And it was that damn shield. <laughs> and that shield flung by Darsh with his exceptional strength. Now, he's no Captain America. It's not bouncing around and coming back to his head. But it's a huge shield. And he whips that thing at the corner. And it hits the thing and it just shatters. And as it busts, the Dijin fades into water and splashes into the water as well. And the water, of course, continues running out the doorways and down the stairs outside. But now there's no pots for the water to come out of. The water's eventually draining down to it's just, you know, a little bit there and water leaking off of stuff and dripping. Very moist in here, if you will. But they're just kind of hanging out there. Artemis and Tobias are gasping. They try, start to do some heals on themselves and things that they need to. Well done, I must say. I'm very impressed. The friends quickly turn around to face the Dijin once more. As he stands over the bed. I have to say, I, I didn't think you had it in you. You're the first ones who did. Congratulations! You figured it out and you bested me. But more importantly, by besting me, you have set me free. I've been trapped in this watery hell for far too long. And now, trapped I am no longer. Anything here is yours. My old master's treasure means nothing to me. And I know that what you're seeking is in there. And he points to a, a door. It actually points towards a tapestry that's ripped off. And if you look carefully, there was a door hidden behind it back in the day. But now it's just mostly visible. <clears throat> in the middle of the fight, no one had time to look for it. It would have been pretty well hidden had he not said, hey, there's a door right there. Dandy goes, so you're not going to kill us? He goes, I have no need to harm you. I didn't want to hurt you to begin with. But I had to do as commanded. My ex-master was a powerful wizard and sultan of these lands. And he entrapped me here, linked with those. He pulled me from the, the elemental plane of water, 
which I can't return to right now because there's this force shield over this new world. Just like the gods can't get in, creatures can't get out. You can't leave this world. We talked about it well in the beginning. But this world is trapped inside basically this defense bubble. And nothing can pass out of it or in it. Magic can. That's why the gods can still give their blessings. But nothing physical can come through. The gods can't come down themselves. Zoltan, the demigod we talked about, is trapped inside because he was in there when it happened. So he can't get out either. Again, the whole quest is to be able to break that so people can go home. He goes, and while I may not be able to return to my beloved plane of water, at least I'm not trapped in this filthy room any longer. So, no, I don't want to kill you. Hell, I'd shake your hands if I thought I could. But I don't think you'd trust that. And Darcy's like, no, no, we, we wouldn't trust that. And he laughs. I didn't think so. Danny goes, do we get wishes? And he looks at him and goes, excuse me? You're a genie. We freed you. Do we get wishes? He smiles and shakes his head. He goes, I'm not that kind of genie. You, the type of power you're asking is well beyond my capabilities. And there are some of my kind that can do that. That's not what I am. But I am a vision of knowledge. And I come from the flowing waters of knowledge. So I will answer three questions. Any questions you ask. And I will answer those questions. But be careful. I will answer exactly what you ask me. Now, if you've ever played Dungeons and Dragons or even read a good fantasy story, you know that a genie loves to screw with people, especially when casting, uh, giving wishes. Dungeons and Dragons is no different. A dungeon master will use the opportunity to screw over a player with a wish, any opportunity they have, and I am no different. When you make a wish, if you do not, down to the detail, tell me exactly what you want, you leave any wiggle room, I'll find a way to mess with you. Doesn't mean I'm going to hurt you or kill you. I'm going to find a way to mess with you. They knew this about me. And I was making it clear here, form your questions well. They took a few minutes to talk amongst themselves, and I don't have written down the specific language they used, but they did a good job of writing down exactly what they wanted. So the first question they asked, well, because they already know that there's a stone in this next room. He basically told them that. So they said, they talked about it, they said, we don't need to ask that. We know there's a stone in there. We're going to get it in a minute when we're done dealing with him. But we don't know where the next one is. So they asked, where is the location of the next stone. And he smiled when they said it that way. He said, I can tell you that. He goes, it is far from here in a land you've never been to. But what I can tell you is this. There is a realm gate not far. I can give you the name of the realm gate. And if you travel through the portal, on the other side, just travel directly north and you shall be there in just a matter of hours. And there you will find the next stone. And they're like, good, then we'll have them all. And he just smiles and said, I didn't say that. And they're like, and they start talking, and they're like, we can, if we get this one here, that's seven. There were seven stones. Zoltan said there were seven stones. And now they got thinking. Now they had to rethink their next questions. And they're like, they tried to be sneaky and ask multiple questions together. Like, is there another stone? If so, where is it? And, blah, blah. and I wasn't going to play that. Like, you got to be specific. And they're like, is there an eighth and final stone? And he said, yes. 
there is one stone that even your Zoltan didn't know about, and it is the final stone. They're like, okay, that's our second question down. Hmm. So, and they were about to ask, where can we find it? And he raises his hand. He goes, you've done me a boon, so I'm going to help you today. Even I do not know the location of the final stone. But to find it, you must first search out Dragonaria, a land of mystery and hidden from many. If you can find it, it will lead you to the final stone. And they're like, okay, all right. Can't tell us where it is. And this is someone who's supposed to have pretty infinite knowledge. He knew there was another stone where the demigod didn't know. That's something. Dragon area. Okay, we've got that. And they were smart, like, well, we didn't ask that. Do we still get another question? And he said, I'll allow another question. And they got to talking about it. And finally, they asked, is Michael okay? That was the question they decided on. It's what Dandy really wanted to know. They had a lot of big questions they could have asked, but at this point, it had been several weeks. And at this, the, the Jin's face kind of gets a little somber. He goes, the man you love is in a dark place. He blames himself, and some would say rightly so, for the death of thousands. He is on a path that I don't know if he will survive. I cannot tell you more than that, only that there is a chance he does, he will come out stronger for it. But I can tell you this. Sometime you will see him again. In what state I cannot say, but you will see him again. That was their third question. With that, the Dijin bows greatly and says, again, at this point I must take my leave. I've waited far too long to be able to do so. I wish you the best on your quests. And he snaps his fingers and dissipates mist of water that filters to the floor. At this point, they make their way over to the secret room, which isn't that secret anymore. Dandy checks for traps and finds one. I don't put him in there that often, but I put him often enough that they're smart enough to always try to check. Because the couple times they don't usually is when it hits them. Because I'm the type of DM that I set the traps up ahead of time. I know exactly where they are. I'm not going to add one just because you didn't check. I'm not, I'm not vindictive like that. My, I know where my traps are well ahead of time, and I know exactly what kind of traps. In this one, it was a poison dart trap. Dandy disarms it. They're able to get in the door. Inside, they find a large amount of wealth, especially in gems. Seems that the previous lord or sultan, if you will, had a big thing for gems and jewelry. So they have a large wealth in gems and jewelry and a chest full of coins as well, which they move all down inside the chest of holding. Again, they are growing wealthier and wealthier all the time. Very, very much so. And most of this money they just keep stockpiled in their chest of holding or hidden in their house. Um, but they're aware that they have basically at this point, they could each buy a small kingdom. They have a horrendous amount of coin and gems and such if they were to sell it all. But they find a couple of different magical items as well. Now, as I've mentioned in the past, I don't normally go into a lot of the details on the magical items they find. And that's because a lot of times it's a sword plus one or this or that. Things that aren't that overwhelmingly important. But sometimes they find an item that is important enough that it affects the story. And in this situation, there are two. 
everybody got a couple of magic items. Dandy got like a, I think it was like a dagger. Because she collects daggers. So by this point, she has several different magical daggers. Uh, this one was like a silver plus two kind of thing, which is good against uh, lycanthropes and such, which is your werewolves or owls or wherever. Um, and um, Artemis, I think she got several spell scrolls that were pretty high level for her at this point, uh, cleric scrolls that she was going to be able to use. Um, yes. And then it came to Mercy and Darsh. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It was Darsh. It was not, it was not Artemis that got the scrolls. I apologize. It was Darsh who got a sword of lycanthropes. It wasn't a dagger. He got a sword of lycanthropes, and Artemis got the scrolls. These are, this is important. I'm just trying to make sure I get them down correctly. Artemis got the scrolls. What Dandy got, because I have a bad habit of giving things that I think are really, really cool, and sometimes they end up affecting me negatively, like making it harder to be a DM, but at the same time opens up so many opportunities for fun things. Dandy got a flying carpet. It is six by eight feet, um, can hold the entire party, and she can control it. Dandy now has a flying carpet. There are limitations on how much it can be used, and then it needs time with basically a cooldown. But the magic carpet, uh, which is a big carpet, they keep it in the chest of the holding most of the time, is technically Dandy's magic carpet. Um, so they have that. Now again, there are limitations to it, right? And that's important. I want you to remember that there is a cooldown period. Um, but we'll get into specifics on that a little bit later. What Mercy got was this, and this was a magic item that I created myself. Because I like to do that. A lot of the magic items and artifacts we put in here, I like to create my own. I like to, some of them you find in the regular D&D stuff, but I found for a pair of rings. Now, these rings are special. Now, you remember, everybody here, except for Tobias, has a ring of central teleportation, which teleports them back to their house. They've got that. And in Dungeons & Dragons, it's also important to remember that you can only have one magic ring on each hand. More than that will nullify each other. And I, I still stick with that rule. I don't have people walking around with eight rings. Artemis, at some point, starts collecting magic rings, and she has a small pouch of them. And none of them are super powerful, but she'll take out the one she needs at that time. Kind of became an Artemis thing throughout time as she picked up a ring of feather fall and a ring of free action, a couple of those basic rings. But this ring is very cool, because the one ring you put on your hand... And the other ring, you put on the handle or shaft of your weapon. And she puts it on her morning star. And it will allow her to summon her weapon to her hand. Now, it's not like Thor, where it comes flying through the air. It will literally teleport it into her hand. Now, it can only be used three times in a 24-hour period. So once you use it the first time, that starts the clock. You use it two more times, it won't reset until 24 hours after that first one. Second one, so on, third one, so often. So you can only use it three times in a 24-hour period, but it allows her to summon her weapon to her hand from any distance. Flight sounds pretty good, but that's even bigger. Now imagine that. If their weapon was back at her house right now, they're weeks away snaps her fingers and it's in her hand. If she's in prison or trapped and they take her weapons away, as long as they don't take the ring, pop, it's right in her hand again. It's incredibly useful. 
at the same time, somebody throws you in prison, they're probably taking all your jewelry. So that one doesn't get used that much that way. But it's very handy if you accidentally roll a one in Dungeons and Dragons and you drop your weapon. Doesn't make the weapon any stronger. Weapon can still break like normal. And by this point, I think she had a Morningstar plus one. Um, and the way that I do damage on weapons, and I'm going to just touch into a little bit more of the D&D side for just a moment. The way that I do damage in weapons is, of course, I have 20 side. You roll a 20, you roll a 1 in Dungeons & Dragons. A 1 is a critical fumble, 20 is a critical hit. I have custom six-sided dice for each. If you roll a 1, you roll it, bad things happen. Hit self, hit ally, break weapon, um, drop weapon, KO. You literally knock yourself out. Critical hit, um, double damage, triple damage, sever limb, uh, KO death. And some things won't work. You're not going to roll KO on a dragon, or death on a dragon. It's just not going to happen, you know? At the same time, you know, I, I, you're not going to get knocked out if you're using a whip. You may poke your eye out, but you're not going to knock yourself unconscious. There are limitations of common sense. But if you roll break weapon, your weapon breaks. Now, you can purposely break your weapon. You know, that's different. Like, I want to break this. Okay, that's fine. You do that. There are some magic items. You have to break them to get them to work. That's fine. But, unless you're trying to break them, if you roll break weapon, your weapon breaks. But if it is a magical item, each weapon basically gets three notches. You have to roll break weapon three times before your magical weapon breaks. Because of the power and the magic within them, they are sturdier than the average whatever it is you have. Again, with the exception of things that are meant to be broken. If I have a glass magic potion that burst things into fire when I throw it at somebody. I don't want to have to throw it three times. That obviously is different. It's designed to work that way. If I have a magic sword or a magic shield, or a magic sword, and I hit break weapon once, I've weakened it, but it's not gone. That makes sense? Hopefully that makes sense to everybody. I felt that an artifact depends on the artifact. Some artifacts are indestructible. You can't break a key, the, the realm key. There's, there's, dragon fire doesn't affect these realm keys. Nothing does. But some artifacts may break on the first one because they're weaker just because they're so powerful. And sometimes that can happen. The more powerful it is, the more volatile. There's a magic staff in, uh, in Dungeons & Dragons uh, called Staff of Power and Staff of the Magi. And Reputable Strike, which is basically the ability to break it on purpose to release its magic and basically create a cr crater where you're standing, that's one of its abilities. Very powerful staffs. But if you're losing and going to die, you take everybody with you. There's stuff out there like that. I wanted to touch into that because that will matter down the road as I'm li listing several magic items and things of importance when they do enter into the story. The flying carpet and Mercy's uh, ability to teleport her morning star, which is the weapon she puts it on, to her hand is very important later in the story. So those are two magic items I wanted to bring to your attention. The magic carpet we're going to see regularly. But the morning star... Rarely, but important when it does. Most of the time, it just gets used when she accidentally drops weapons or somebody knocks it out of her hand on purpose. She just teleports it back to her hand. There's a couple times later on, though, that it's going to be more symbolic or more meaningful. So I wanted to touch on that. So, at this point, they have to get home. They've got everything they need. It's time to get back. Hey, they don't have to climb across that rope anymore because they've got a flying carpet. And they fly right over the swamp. It's not fast, and I want to stress that. The flying carpet... 
is walking speed. It does not zip around like it does in cartoons and such. It's very slow, but it's also very sturdy. The other issue they run into is that, remember I said everybody has phobias? Artemis, horribly afraid of heights. So she hates the flying carpet. Hates being on it in any situation. But she understands the importance. She sits in the middle and just tries not to pass out. But that's Artemis's phobia was heights. As you remember, Darsh's was spiders. Um, so yes, I had a Kender character years ago whose phobia was people with no faces. Just blank. Kender immune to fear. So I thought it'd be funny to create something that doesn't really exist to be afraid of. Because why not? It never happened, but funny. They get back to the realm gate. They use the portal to go home because they realize they should go home before they go to get the next gem. Because now there's two out there. They got to go to the one where they have the rune structure to go get. And there's the eighth one they didn't know about where they've got to find something called Dragon Area. They get home. Their horses are there. They decide to take their horses. They don't want to just come flying into town with the magic carpet because that's not the kind of thing you want to announce you have to the common populace. They don't want everybody to know they have a ton of treasure in their chest of holding either. Luckily, they're not coming back with chests full of treasure, so you wouldn't tell that. It's a little tiny chest in their pocket. Nobody knows they have all this treasure. If you've not been here earlier, they have a magical chest that inside of it is the room that's like 25 feet by 25 feet. It's a, it's a little tiny chest, but it'll grow to a regular size with a, with a command word. You can climb down into it, and it's a huge space of holding. So they keep tons of stuff down in there. Tons of treasure. And supplies and such. So they've got hundreds of feet of rope and all that kind of stuff. And there's always a barrel of pickled fish, because you never know. After their travel time, they get back to Paxawal. Again, they report everything that they that they know here. They tell everybody their story. Here's this, here's that, so on. Uh, they report to the Mage Tower. Uh, they uh, show the magical items, the flying carpet. Lamia wants to see them. She doesn't take them. She's very interested in Mercy's ring because she's never seen anything like that. She personally designed the ring of central teleportation that they use to teleport back to Paxawal occasionally. So she's very interested in that one, and Mercy agrees to let her run some tests on it at a future time as time allows, which she appreciates. In the flying carpet they've seen before, they have a few of their own, you know, within the ownership of the Mage Guild, but it's still cool. They then go and they tell everything to what's happening to the uh, temple. They go and they tell Brother Bart, Sister Mara, this is what we've learned. There's an eighth gem we didn't know about. It's something about Dragon Area, which, for the record, none of the mages or the temple have ever heard of that word or know anything about it. But just like they were before, they're going to send out all the things they can to send out information, search the libraries, and see if they can find any reference to it anywhere. Um, and then they say, we know where there's another realm gate now that we have to go to to get this, this next one. And we're going to leave pretty quickly. We're going to just take a day to gather up some supplies, things that we need, check in on the house, and then we're going to leave. Now... I want to say that there are times here that they will leave money with the temple. Because they start gathering a large amount of treasure. So the temple, being reputable, allows them to basically use them as a bank. They can put their money and treasure in there. The, if they want, the temple will take their gems and such, sell them on their behalf, give them the coin value. The temple works that way. Because Artemis is tithing 10% of everything that she gets. Which, at this point, is a lot. So she's giving a bunch of money 
and in return she gets to use the bank and the other characters get to do that as well. So their shares of coin aren't always in the chest of holding. They carry a good chunk of money with them in case they need it, but the vast majority of their wealth is within the vault in the temple, which is overwhelmingly well protected. One eye's tried. You can't get in there. <laughs> so there's that. So we've got, let's see, 12 minutes to 10. Excellent. We've got enough time to get going. So they spend a day checking with Molly, eat a couple pies, tell them a little bit of the story. Swamp, magic carpets. She's very excited. They let her sit on the magic carpet and lift up in the living room. Oh, it was, the, it was a highlight of her day, but she couldn't go much higher. Her heart getting palpitations. Again, Molly's a little bit of an older lady, but she's sweet as can be. But she thought that was totally cool. She got to just sit and go back and forth very slowly in the living room. She thought that was the most exciting thing in the world. The first magical item that she's ever had. <laughs> so... That's pretty cool. Um, she keeps an eye on the house and such for them, gives them pies. They gather up their goods, or their supplies. They spend the night there as normal. I want to point out a couple things. Dandy has not been had anyone reach out to her from the Thieves Guild. She sees a sign of them around the city. She's not had anyone reach out. One Eye's not reached out for anything, which is fine. She wasn't expecting it, but it hasn't happened. At the same time, Artemis has not heard a peep from Draven since he spoke to her in the Citadel where they fought Michael. She has tried every spell she has from curing wounds and everything. Nothing removes that tattoo slash birthmark of a blood red teardrop on her upper chest where the necklace shattered. It's not in the middle, it's to the side. Because in the fight in the battle it was swinging around under her robe and it broke just a little bit over her heart. Convenient. So she can't get rid of that, but at the same time, she hasn't told anybody about it because she doesn't want them burdened with the thought that she potentially has made a deal with the devil. She doesn't know anything about the guy. Um, during this situation, Darsh hasn't heard anything from his cousin as well, and Mercy just doesn't have anybody to hear anything from. So I wanted to just touch base on that stuff. That hasn't happened. None of, the, none of those things have happened. So at this point, they decide... We need to go the next day. We need to get this gem so we can get back and start searching for this dragon area place. We are two gems away from being done at this point. And then we can open up this interdimensional space that all these magical artifact weapons are in, get them to Zoltan, and get this done once and for all. And we need to do it before Nilat the Darkness finds us, because we know he's still out there somewhere. They take off. Very quickly again, traveling almost a week back to get to the... Um, a little bit longer this time, because they don't take horses. Once they're out of sight of Paxawal and they're away, they use the flying carpet as much as possible, much to Artemis's displeasure. Um, but they don't decide not to take horses this time, because they don't want to just keep leaving horses wandering around. Someone could just steal them. And they like their horses. So they take the magic carpet as much as possible, which, again, doesn't go fast, but it does eliminate the issue of terrain... If they're flying high enough, they don't really worry about being attacked on the ground. So it does eliminate some of the uh, brigands or road thieves that may try to get you at that point. They make it to the Valley of Sacrifice without any issues. Once again, going down into the chamber where the Realm Gate is. Activating it. Now, I want to say Tobias does not come with them this time. I want to say that. I, I should have referenced that a moment ago. It's just our four heroes that are going in this adventure. Tobias stays because he's got a lot to talk to Lemie about, to be debriefed and so on, and give all the information that he took about the realm gates, measurements and such, drawings and things. Uh, but he does not come in this situation. They understand. They go it alone. So they don't have a mage this time. 
<clears throat> Reaching the gate, they put the key in just like they did before, and they used the new runic name that they were provided by the djinn. And it opens, again, same as before. Now it's this swirly thing, spinny. And they go through. And when they walk through this realm gate, they're immediately assaulted by the sound of water. Water seems to be the theme today. And they're in a dark chamber. Now, Art Mercy can see perfectly fine, of course, because of her little magical tiara that lets her see. Again, a magic item that's important, which is why I mentioned it specifically. But they go ahead and light a torch up, because it's not dark enough that it's pitch black where the infravision works real well. So they light a torch, and they're in a big cave, a big cavern. It's probably about 30 feet tall, okay? And the arch is sitting right in the center of it. And at one end is like what would be a big doorway, but just water coming down. So they're like, okay, we need to check this out. So they make their way over, and the water's coming down pretty hard and pretty fast. You really can't see out of it, which means it's a pretty thick set of water. It's coming down strong enough that the concern is, if we're near the top of, you know, if we're at the bottom of a waterfall, that's a lot of water coming down. If this is the pool, we get knocked out. It's not going to be easy. So we need to go through. Someone has to go through. And they decide that once again, it's going to be Darsh. He's the strongest. The water will affect him slightly less than everybody else. And he can potentially stand up where everybody else couldn't. He can take more brunt of the water. They do not tie themselves to him this time because, you know, they don't, they don't know what's on the other side. and They don't want to all get pulled through. Now, I want to point out that there's not a pool of water at the bottom. The waterfall is going past the opening. So again, for all they know, they could be at the top of a cliff. They could be at the bottom of a cliff. There could be a lot of stuff going on there. So they make their way to the opening. And Darsh takes his sword, whatever, and kind of pokes it through. And he can feel the pressure of the water knocking down. But it's not quite as bad as he thought it was going to be. He's like, okay, that's harsh, but it's, it's not going to send me flying. I, I'm okay with that. So he takes off several of his shield and stuff and gives it to them. Because if he does fall into water, he doesn't need a lot of weight dragging him down. He says, okay, hell, hold my shield and such. And my, he just takes just his battle axes on his back. It's the only thing he's carrying because he always leaves that strapped on the back. And he starts going through the water. And sure enough, after he's out a little bit, he falls. He doesn't fall far. Just about five or six feet. And he lands into a pool of water comes to the surface real quick, and he sees that he's at the edge of a small lake. There is a high waterfall coming down, but their cave entrance is only about six feet above the water level. If they were up much higher, there are some rocks down there that he got bumped on a little bit. Might have been more dangerous, but at the height that he fell, since he didn't land on his head, maybe his head would handle it better than others, but he did not die. So he calls up to the others, basically what I just told you, and they start coming, and they jump out as far as they can. Now they're trying to dive through. And Mercy's got Darsh's shield and such strapped on her because she's the strongest. And she goes running through next and jumps out. And he just sees Mercy on a shield come flying through like she's on a flying carpet and splashes in. Helps her up and everybody comes out the same way. Now they were told by the Jin that once they came out, they should go straight north. Now luckily where they're at now, pretty sunny day. They're all wet, which is good, but it's nice and warm out. I would say it's probably like a late summer, just the beginning of fall. The trees in this area are just starting to turn. Um, so, but it's not cold enough that they're really chilly. The sun dries them off relatively quickly. They start off on foot going a little ways. They don't want just five feet flying a magic carpet and all of a sudden show up at somebody's house. So they go a short distance. They don't see anything. So Dandy decides to scout. She hops on the flying carpet and slowly goes up above the trees because the lake is surrounded by trees. I for, sorry, I forgot to mention that. She goes up and as she's floating up, she comes back down and she's like, Okay, I got good news and I got bad news. 
I'm going to tell you the good news first. The good news is I don't see any houses or castles, and the trees are far enough apart that we're not going to have any problem. It's not real thick vegetation. We should have no problem going north. And they're like, okay, that's a good sign. What's the bad news? She goes, uh, just as almost as far as I can see, there appears to be just this massive wall that goes way, way high up and in every both directions, and I can't see around either side of it. And they're like, wow, okay, that's uh, different. What's it made of? She goes, I can't tell. It's too far away. She's got pretty good eyes. I'm like, okay, well, that's the direction we've got to go. Big wall it is. They decide to take the flying carpet to go over the trees just because it's faster. Artemis hates it, but they do. They take the carpet. As they're getting closer to the wall, it turns out it's not quite as big as she thought. Again, dandy. Slightly embellishes things, but it is very, very large. It's not so much a wall as it is a dome. Okay, Picture a massive dome that's probably about 20 to 25 stories high. So we're talking a skyscraper-sized dome. Very large. It goes around it. But as a dome, it's made out of bramble. Now picture that. Thorny vines. Okay? Except the thorns, probably, you know, averaging one to three feet. Razor sharp. Almost to the point that it looks like they could cut through metal. Because technically they can cut through metal. I made it quite clear to them not to test it with anything metal because it can cut through metal. They reach the dome. They go try to go up high, which just bugs Artemis even more. They go up high, completely covers. So at this point, they're like, this obviously looks outside of the normal. Oh, my goodness, I am so sorry. I have to stop myself really quickly. I didn't tell you which gem they got. They got the Earth Gem. I'm so sorry. I breezed right over that talking about the magic carpet. From the castle of the Dijin, they got the Earth Gem, which completes their elemental set. So now they have all four of the elements. They also have the Life Gem and the Death Gem. So that's six of what they now know is eight. Totally had to say that earlier. I forget. So. They make it there. They're like, okay, maybe there's a door on one side. So they start going down to the ground level, and just start flying around it. As they're going around, they're trying... It's a big dome, and they go pretty slow on this thing. Again, it is not zipping all over the place. It is slow, and it ascends and descends very slow as well. It's very sturdy. Again, it's not a fast way to travel, other than it negates any type of walking through trees or rivers and such. It's great for crossing water, but, you know, it is what it is. But a stiff wind could blow you off of it. I mean, it's not like you're not magically held on there. If you're real high, lightning could technically hit it, I guess. I'm just saying, things to be aware of with the magic carpet. In case you ever get one yourselves, wandering around Walmart or something, I want you to be safe if you buy a magic carpet. So, as they're flying around, and they're relatively close to the ground at this point, because they assume if there's a door, it's going to be attached to the ground. I think that's a safe bet we could all make. And they're traveling, and then suddenly they hear a voice from behind them calling out. They stop the carpet and quickly turn around, and standing on the ground behind where they were, and I must stress they were not there a moment ago, are two figures. They're not far away, but they're small. Now, 
some of our characters are small. I've stressed that a lot. I've stressed how small Dandy is. Kender are very small. Look like a child elf, really. These two figures standing there look a lot like an elf as well, except they're even smaller. Barely two feet tall. Now imagine that. Imagine that. Just a really, really tiny elf standing there. Um, she says, if I get one, I'm so going to tell you about it, then I'm going to go on a trip. <laughs> Magic carpet, I look forward to hearing about your story. <laughs> but these two really, really small figures, dressed in greens and browns, but they don't have the elven eyes or ears. They, they look more human, but thin in nature like an elf. Does that make sense? So without the, the pointy ears, you know, the brow or the, you know, the elf thing, um, the, the one is a male and one looks like a female. And the male has a full bushy beard, you know, much like mine in length. Although I'm probably shaving most of this off this week. I think I'm going to go down just to goatee for the summer. But, uh, you know, the, he's got a beard. Elves don't really grow facial hair that often. So most versions of elves can't. So they don't look like elves. So they lower down slowly, but the people are sitting there and, and, and they're kind of waving. They don't look threatening. They can see small weapons. One has, the male has a bow, and the female has a staff. Um, but they aren't threatening. They don't have their weapons drawn. They're just kind of waving in their direction. So our heroes kind of drop their carpet, well, five or six feet away at least, maybe a little more, and then kind of stand up, because you don't stand up on a flying carpet. It's just not smart. Gandhi could do it. Nobody else should. Then they all kind of stand up and walk over to meet them. They get kind of close, but not super close. And, and they're like, Greetings. Hi. Sorry to bother you. Um, we were just trying to find a way kind of in there. Do, do you know a way in there? And the male and female look at each other and they smile and they're like, Yes, we've been waiting for you for quite a while. We're so glad that you arrived. We thought you weren't going to make it today, but that's very awesome. So if you would mind... Well, you don't see awesome. That is very wonderful. Awesome. If you would like to come with us... There's a passage through the wall that we can lead you through. You must be very careful to follow our steps, especially your large friend here. It will be a very tight fit for him, and the walls are very dangerous to the touch. But they do make a wonderful protection for our, for our village. They're like, okay, right? You you said that you were you were waiting for us? Well, we knew someone was coming. The prophet in town said that Someone would come from the sky. It's all that they said. And we've been watching for you now for several days, and sure enough, you went flying by on your cloth there, and we have to assume you're the ones that she told us about. So um, if you want to get your... You won't be able to fly that through, but if you want to gather up yourself, come with us, we would like to take you to meet her. She made it quite quite important that we get you to her as soon as possible. And they're like, okay, well... They seem friendly, and they're really, really small. Darsh is like, I think I could take these guys pretty easy. But, you know, at the same time, he's also thinking, how many more of these little guys are inside the hedges here that I can't see? I know it's dangerous for me, but how, you know, they could be small. They could fit in there. So he's very careful about that. So they gather up their rug, and they put it in their chest of holding. They hate showing the chest of holding in front of people, but they really don't want to walk around with this big six-by-eight-foot rug, because it's a big rug. It's, it's just a big piece of carpet. It doesn't shrink. They put that down in the chest of holding, to which these are like, oh, how interesting, magic. And they lead them back to an, the brambles. Now, flying by, they didn't notice it because literally you're almost walking in. Like, it's just a, a small slit that Darsh has to be incredibly 
incredibly careful to squeeze through. He was the only one that actually had to roll. Fortunately, everyone else is very thin. Dandy and Artemis especially. Mercy, muscular, but small. So her armor was the biggest issue. But th she was able to get through pretty well. But it's literally a winding path that every so often, when they changed directions, they had to roll to make sure they didn't hit the wall and hurt themselves. Darsh had negatives, of course, because he's the largest. But it takes about five to ten minutes of going through this windy path that you they wouldn't even have seen it at points. It's the illusion of how well it's grown. Unless you got up and happened to look, it would be very hard to see some of the path. And sometimes there were other options that they didn't go down. So it could be like a maze. They don't know. But finally, they get through. Now, when they get through, the area they're in looks like a very nice countryside. Rolling hills and such. It's a big, it's a kingdom-sized chunk of land underneath of this, a small kingdom. And they can see small homes, what appears to be a small village in the center. And the sunlight comes through the bramble perfectly fine. Gives a little bit of a shadowy look, but it's well bright up here. Plants are growing inside. There's a river that runs through from some source inside. Uh, it disappears underneath the hedges. You couldn't come swimming up through it. The hedges grow through it. But they managed to make their way through perfectly fine into this very nice era. Um, let me grab that here. So, as they're traveling towards the houses, young male and female, they give their names. I apologize. I don't remember what they are. It wasn't that important at the time. These are just only going to see these guys for a minute. But they give their names, and they say that they are Barrow Elves. Artemis is intrigued. She goes, I've... I'm an elf myself, but I've never heard of Barrow Elves. She goes, yes, yes, um, from the world that we're from. Um, we are just a s couple small communities. Um, we live within these type of bramble domes that grow naturally on our world. Uh, more of protection from the other races, um, as very often they you know, try to use this slave labor or that kind of stuff. You know. Not cool stuff. So they, they live within the brambles, and that's, that's a safe place because the brambles are fireproof. You can't burn them. Um, they're as hard as steel, so cutting through them would take a really long time. Um, and the Barrow Elves have the ability to kind of maneuver way through it, and they're pretty deadly with their bows and arrows, which they tip um, with pieces of the bramble chunks that, are, that, that fall off uh, at points, which are basically twice as sharp as a regular arrowhead. So very dangerous little arrows. So inside, they're completely protected. And a small army, an army coming on them, they'd probably take the army out pretty quick before they could ever cut through. Beryl said that they've lived in here for a long time and their village has always had some type of a prophet or wise woman. It kind of passes from generation to generation. So half prophet, half shaman kind of thing. Shaman, however you pronounce that. And that the shaman sometimes has visions or sees things in the stars. Although, you know, you can't really see the stars that well, but trust me, she can. That will tell her of things that are coming, danger to the village and such. But for the last year, she seemed very, very antsy, um, very, very busy. And sometimes she kept saying, have you seen anything strange ever since the merge? She goes, ever since the merge, she's been kind of antsy about this going on. And then finally today, she goes, finally, the day is coming. She goes, sometime in the next few days, this was earlier this week, someone will come from the sky. You must bring them to me. And so many of us went out to the the walls, we're taking turns watching, uh, and luckily we're the ones that found you, so we get to take you in. 
So they take them into town, and as they're coming in, of course, many the, the little little homes or little huts and such, the traditional little elf or human homes, nothing fancy. You can say almost like little halfling holes, if you will, like from uh, The Hobbit and such, little homes like that. Um, people come out and are like, ooh, look at that. And the kids and parents are holding their kids back because they don't get a lot of people in here that aren't barrow elves. In fact, it's quite a rule that no one else comes through. But you do what the wise woman says when she says it. But they bring her to basically a home in the, in the center of town. And slightly larger than the others. And they ask her, wait a minute. And they go up and the female knocks on the door. And she steps inside for a minute. And she comes back out and she goes, she will see you now. Please, enter inside. Now, luckily, the door here is a little bit larger. This room appears to be sometimes used as a meeting place as well. So it's not just her home. It could be almost like a town center. Um, Darsh still almost has to get down his hands and knees to get through. Everybody else just kind of has to duck. Although some of the other doors, they would almost have to lay down and crawl through. Once they get inside, the home is pretty well lit with uh, some candles and such, and there's a couple holes on the ceiling that look like uh, there's tarps that they could throw over it like to, for when it rains. Um, but the, the light coming through in a nice weather day makes it look pretty well, but like a Swiss cheese kind of lighting, if you will. So it's a mixture of the torchlight and the sunlight. And there's an older Barrowell sitting there. And she just sits there and she smiles. And she goes, please, come, come. I've been waiting for you a long time. Now, she definitely looks older. Even though they say they're Barrow Elves, they look like very thin humans. They don't have, the, like we've mentioned, no ears, eyes, none of the elf traits of that way. But I will say that they're longer lived than humans by far. Don't live anywhere near as long as a regular elf. They have more of a dwarf age, which is your four to five hundred if you're lucky. So, she's an older one. She comes, sits down, and she asks their names, where they're from, and asks them to tell her their story. And so they do, as best they can, leaving out some of the important stuff, like Michael being the Lord of the Dead, temporarily, and stuff like that. But they fill around most of the stuff. They tell Zoltan, they're looking for the stones. She knows something about them. They decide, we're going to go tell her as much as we possibly can. They leave some stuff out like location of the gems and you know dragon area things like that and she nods and she shakes goes yes yes you're exactly the ones i've been waiting for i've actually been waiting for you for oh goodness 60 70 years now which catches them by surprise dandy wasn't even alive at that point neither was mercy or darsh artemis was but she was a young she's still a young for an elf artemis goes my lady how did you know so long ago that we were coming and she goes, well, I must say, I didn't know it was you specifically, but I knew that someone would come for the stone eventually. My mother was the town wise woman before myself. And she had the gem. And it was something that I knew was important. It was something that she protected. But one day, she left us. But before she did, she told me in the future, someone would come from the gem. And she gave me different signs to look for. And when those people came, I was to lead you to it. Now, you're not the first who've come looking for things from us. But you're the first to know of the gem specifically. For that, I'm going to take it as you're the ones I've been waiting for. All the signs have shown up over the last couple of years. The merge, as you call it, being one of the biggest examples. And they're like, 
excellent. In their heads, they're thinking, this is actually going to be a lot easier. Finally, we found someone who's just going to take us to the gym. Thank goodness. We're tired of fighting genies and old friends and lords of the deads to get a hold of these things. Finally, we have someone who's just going to let us have it. And they're like, excellent. Um, when, when can we go to where the gem is? And she goes, right now. And she turns her chair and she points towards a wooden door at the back of the home. She goes, it's actually right through there. And they're like, oh, you, is that like a treasure room or something? Is that like a, like a, where you keep your money or like what important stuff? She goes, no. She goes, that's the room specifically. Many, many years ago, my mother told me to watch for you. And then she went through that door. And it's not been opened since. You're the ones that must go through. It's not meant for me. And immediately they're like, oh, great. So it's not going to be you're just going to hand us a gem. This is going to be harder than we thought. Immediately, they thought it was going to be a puzzle dungeon, like a maze. Or they have to get in there and figure out all sorts of stuff. It's not quite what they expected. She reaches into her little bag, which has wise woman stuff in it, and pulls out a very small key. And she puts it in Artemis's hand. The door has been locked since the day my mother went in. It now stands for you. They look at each other and they're like, okay, all right. I guess we can do that. Thank you very much. We, we should go now. Like, yes, please. I know you've waited a long time, as we all have. And you're like, all right. They start walking towards the door, and they're kind of looking at each other, and they're like, should we have Danny check for traps? And they're like, Danny's like, I'm totally going to check for traps. <laughs> Danny's like, here, I'll take the key. Let me get over here. I'm not good with keys. And they're walking up to the door, and they're walking to the door, and oddly enough, the room seems, it's a little bit bigger than it seems. The way the lighting works, it's actually a little bit further than they thought. And they're walking, and it's taking a little bit longer to get to this door than they should. And as they get to the door, they realize the door's much bigger than they thought. It's almost big enough Darsh could walk through. It looked much smaller from back there. And then they look back and behind them, they don't even see anything anymore. Just darkness. And they turn around and there's just the door and darkness. Danny's like, I am totally checking for traps. And she gets in there and does the roll. I tell her that she doesn't find any. She says she wants to try again. No, we don't allow that, but I'm like, sure, go ahead. Tries it. No traps. Artemis says, I'm going to cast a spell on the door. I don't care if they're watching or not at this point. She casts her detect magic. Doesn't find any magic on the door. Doesn't show any magic there at all. The lock is just a small, simple lock. Darsh could pull it off with his hands. Or snap it in two. Mercy could uh, probably as well. Danny takes the key, puts it in. Unlocks like it's a brand new lock. Takes the little lock off, moves the latch. It's not like the door in there. It's like a padlock. Take that off. Turns the door handle. And the door opens. Smooth. Not a squeak. And inside? Well, I'm very excited. <clears throat> because for the very first time in the Merged World story, I actually get to read to you exactly what I read to them in this situation. <clears throat> Pretty excited about it, because I haven't got to do this yet. 
I apologize. Some of this was written a long time ago, so it may not be my best writing. I promise it gets better the more we go on. I'm going to go ahead and read this. It's not long, but I'm going to read the snippet. The wooden door swings open silently as you open it. Darkness is on the other side. With no other choice, you decide to step through. Suddenly above you, you see a beautiful clear night sky. The stars twinkle clearly in the heavens. Your feet clunk on the wooden floor as you step forward. Suddenly, out of nowhere, a tall being, tall being steps in front of you. Its long purple robes hang from its thin frame. Its large, bulbous head turns to you, and its solid black eyes seem to stare directly into your mind. The long four tentacles where its mouth should be writhe furiously. I gave them a moment to react to that. Looking around, you see people running everywhere. It only takes you a second to realize that you're on a large, strangely shaped ship. Suddenly, a wispy voice appears in your mind, and you know it's the creature before you. I don't know who you are, where you come from, or how you got on my ship, but you better draw those weapons and defend it, or we're all dead. At that point, a large, beastly roar is heard from the sky. Instinctively, they all draw their weapons and turn. And what they see flying towards the ship is a creature that looks much like a sphinx. If you know what a sphinx is from Egyptian lore, kind of like creature, head, Big wings, angelic wings. It's white, white as snow. Huge talons. But it has a lion roar. It's not talking like a person like some sphinx would. This one seems more animalistic as it flies towards the ship. Looking at the crew, characters can see that it's a mixed crew. Humans, dwarves, an elf, something that looks like a minotaur, but instead of a man mixed with a cow. It looks like a man mixed with a hippo? And it's big. It's like Darsh's size. <clears throat> People are firing bows at the sphinx-like creature. At the front of the ship, someone's trying to crank and load a giant ballista. And people are literally preparing to swing at the thing as it comes towards the ship. <clears throat> the creature, that was somehow speaking into their mind, he sees it pointing and talking, and you can only assume that it's yelling out commands into the minds of others as they draw their weapons and are preparing to fight. The sails are brought down on the ship. The sails looking odd. There were sails, Darshan being a seaman, knowing all about the boats. The sails had no wind. They were just standing there. He feels no wind at all, but they were full billowed, as if the wind was blowing them. But they, those are dropped very quickly. Mostly so that the Sphinx thing can't destroy it. You destroy the sails of the mast, you've got serious problems. People are firing. Without anything else to do, none of these people here are trying to kill them, but that thing looks like it's going to kill everybody. They feel they've got no choice but to immediately jump in and help defend the ship. 
looking back at the door they came from, they can clearly see it's a normal-looking door, which probably just leads down into the bottom of the ship. So not knowing what else to do, they rush to the edge of the ship, ready to do battle. But when they get to the edge of the ship, they stop, shocked, and not just surprised, but in fear and horror. Because much as they see the stars in the sky above them, over the edge of the ship, all they see is sky below. In fact, in every direction, it's like they're floating in a night sky. There's no water, there's no land, just stars far off in every direction. The ship they're on itself is wooden, metal parts, brass and bronze, but it's shaped like a giant dragon itself. In fact, the sail they saw was but one of the two wings. But they themselves appear to be floating in an endless void of night as this giant sphinx creature flies towards them. And that's where we're going to stop for tonight. We've been running on two hours and 20 minutes. I try to keep it around that time period, 2.20 or 2.30. Uh, let me check the chat here. I mean, well, you're the best storyteller, no joke. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I learned a long time ago when I wanted to, originally I wanted to write this into books. Um, I can never get it on paper as well as I can speaking it. Because on paper, I have a hard time doing the, as the wind blew across the gray meadows, the flowers, I just, the fluff, the middle filler stuff I can't do. I prefer the storytelling aspect, getting to share it in this medium where I can just literally say it to you the way I say it to them. And we're going to see more of that. I was very excited to get to do that today. So it's the first time I actually got to do that. Uh, but there's a, I have tons of snippets in here of, of story segments like that that we're going to go in. And just for my own personal enjoyment. I usually give different sections of the adventure titles. This one I called Space the Final Frontier. No one ever sees that but me. It's purely for my own entertainment. I don't ever tell that to the characters, but um, yeah, they're, they're in space on a magical dragon ship. And uh, it's a type of Dungeons and Dragons that not many people play. It didn't last very long, but I was really always looking for an opportunity to slide a little bit of what's called Spelljammer, which is a space type of D&D, into fantasy D&D. So I wanted to bring a little bit of that in here, and I thought that was a, a great idea. Um, See, so yeah, that was amazing. I love the title. And yes, the Merge World story streams are every other Sunday. Yeah, Merge Worlds is every other Sunday night. Uh, so not next week, but the week after will be the next episode, episode 18. Um, if you've like to listen to some of the back episodes, um, you can, of course, all the video streams are here on my channel if you'd like to watch the video. Um, a lot of people prefer it that way because you can see me talking, and I do put pictures up on the screen sometimes of parts that are going on in the story, uh, so you can watch those. If you prefer an audio format, you can search Merged Worlds, which is all one word, M-E-R-G-E-D-W-O-R-L-D-S, on iTunes or Spotify. It is available for free as an audio podcast. I just take this clip, pull the audio out, and put it up. This episode will be available on both iTunes and Spotify by tomorrow night, um, so that'll be on there. Um, if you have Spotify and iTunes, and you'd like to go in and give it a follow or a subscribe, whatever it is on either one, um, I, I love that. definitely helps out. The more people that like and subscribe and follow things like that, the more the 
uh, iTunes or Spotify advertise it to other people, and I'd like to get this out to as many people who'd like to listen. I don't make any money on those mediums. I'm not trying to. I just like to get my story out to as many people as I can. Uh, this means a lot to me, and I've been working on it a long time. Uh, so it's exciting to see new faces pop in here. Uh, Vision says, now you got me wanting more. I'm going to be listening through these over the week. Also, I've been wanting to play Spelljammer. Excellent! Excellent! So, yeah, sometimes you'll... Uh, You'll get to, I like to bring in my own custom stuff and grab chunks from different styles of D&D as well. So I'm, I'm really up, excited about that. Uh, Neon says, I'm catching up as well. Just finished episode two recently. It's a long ride, but a great story. Yes, each episode averages normally between two and two hours. So, or sorry, two and two and a half hours. So this being episode 17, there's a minimum, including this episode of 34 hours worth of story already. And I kid you not, not even close to halfway through at this point. <laughs> And that's it, too. I'm like, so we played this over a long period of time. Once we get to the point that we've done everything that I've written, I know what was going to happen after that, even though we never got to play it. I have episodes after episodes of the world story as it's going to continue that I'm going to continue to share once I've gone over what we call the back catalog. I have a lot more new stuff that no one's ever heard, even the people that got to play it. I'm going to move forward just telling the story as it was meant to be told from that point on. So um, I'm very excited about that as well. Down the road, I'm going to actually have some Dungeons & Dragons content on the channel. Uh, maybe even play with some of the community, do some live streaming. Anything that I run will take place on Merge Worlds. Um, it gives me the ability to do pretty much anything I want. Um, so uh, down the road, some people may have opportunities, especially when we do the Extra Life charities, uh, things like that. I think I'm going to do um, some of the prizes or be involved and get to be in a Merge Worlds adventure. Get your own characters and jump in there. So that's pretty something. Uh, what is it called on Apple Music, whatever? Uh, Merged Worlds. Yes, Neon's link there. Just do a search for Merge Worlds and it'll pull up. Uh, Diamond Hook says, I've been listening to this while playing Sky Factory 3 and I think it's a cool story. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. It means a lot to me. Um, I've been working on this, like I said, since I was in high school and I'm old. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm very excited to get to share it and that so many people have been joining. If you've enjoyed it, Please be sure to click like if you don't mind. If you haven't subscribed to the channel, please do that. And if you want to follow on iTunes or um, Spotify, that would be awesome as well. Um, we also here on the channel, of course, like we mentioned before, you can go to my website, onlydraven.com. There's a link at the top of multiple pages, and one of them says characters. If you go there, you'll see pictures of actors, actresses, celebrities. Uh, some of them are just art drawings, clearly, if you're a minotaur. But those are what the characters look like in the face and such. To give you an idea of what these characters look like, uh, it's a great place to, to look at and say, oh, this is what Artemis looks like. This is, this is the actress, so, so you and I are seeing the same thing in our heads as I'm telling the story. And I have more to put on there. I mean, you're going to see, if I, I, I don't think Zach and Twill are on there. They might be. If not, they'll be up there tomorrow. Uh, because Zach and Twill are going to be showing, have a little bit bigger part moving in now. Willie Glow says, I got it on both now. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, but yeah, if you uh, if you enjoyed it, I appreciate you hanging out tonight. Um, like I said, uh, two Sundays from now, we'll be doing it again. Um, usually 8 p.m. Uh, Eastern is when I start this. Again, the audio version of this episode will be up by tomorrow night. Tomorrow I'll edit it and get it all up on there. Then it usually takes Spotify and iTunes at least two to three hours to fully upload on there because it refreshes once or twice a day. But I'll get that up there as quickly as I can. Please feel free to join the ODG Discord. You can find the link for that on OnlyDraven.com as well. If you want to chat about the story with myself or other listeners, you know, ask questions about things that you come across in the story for clarification or... If you have any questions about the world, feel free to hit me up or hit them on there. I'm always happy to chat about it. Uh, the channel also does have a membership program called Draven's Dragons. If you click the join button here on YouTube, uh, you'll see a link of all the different perks 
that are part of that. It's not required. It's kind of like a Twitch subscription, less expensive, but with more perks. Um, so that's a little something on there if you're interested in checking that out as well. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and call that a night. We are at the two and a half hour mark, and that's where I like to answer it. Feel free, if you're listening to this later, uh, to come to the Discord and ask questions, or you can post them here on the video, and I'll do my best to reply to them as quickly as I can. I do love and enjoy talking to the story. As long as it's not a spoiler, I'll answer anything that I can. Uh, but thank you all very much for coming and listening to my story and giving me the chance to share what is really an important part of my life uh, with all of you awesome people. It means a lot. Um, special thank you as always to my members. You'll see those are the folks with the different colored fonts. I appreciate you all helping me keep the lights on and paying for all this stuff. And uh, extra special thank you to my moderators for helping me keep everything up and running correctly. So I'm going to call that a day. Thank you all again very, very much for coming by and sharing this with me today. I look forward to sharing with you again in two more weeks. You all have yourselves a wonderful evening.